Turn it on and rip the knob off. Hey fans, and welcome to the second episode of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. I'm your host, Ray Russell, and joining me once again is my co-host, Steven Xtax. Steve, welcome back to the show, brother. Happy to be here, man. I'm excited to get through this episode. Before we get things moving, I just want to once again thank the Retro Network, Mickey and Jason, everyone there. You can check out everything they have going on at the Retro Network at theretronetwork.com or follow them on Twitter at TRNSocial. Speaking of Twitter plugs, you can also follow us, the Wrestling Memory Grenade Show, on Twitter, at Rasslin Grenade, that's R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade, and with our debut episode in the books, I think it's safe to say for the both of us, we feel a little looser this week, we're having a little more fun and figuring out the flow of the show, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like it went pretty good last week, but I'm looking forward to seeing how well we performed this week. And before we jump into the show this week, just recently uh, we learned of the uh, untimely death of uh, Kamala, James Harris. Uh, Kamala, of course... uh, a big star of the 1980s and uh, certainly early 90s. Got his start wrestling under the names of the Mississippi Mauler, Sugar Bear Harris, Bad News Harris. Uh, worked all over the place from the United Kingdom to pretty much every territory around the United States. Got his gimmick of Kamala in 1982 Memphis from Jerry Lawler, and the rest is history. Uh, you have any thoughts on the passing of Kamala? Yeah, it's definitely sad. I knew he wasn't in great health. But uh, he's uh, one of those guys, I've only seen him as Kamala. I've never seen early Harris uh, work. He, he's one of those guys that uh, he played the gimmick very well, whether he was, you know, a, a ruthless bad guy, Mauler type, or even his run in like 93 with You Are a Man. Very under, underrated talent and uh, just a great gimmick. And he always, from everything I've heard of him, he seems like a great guy. Rest easy, big man. That's all I can say. Uh, of course, Kamala passed away at age 70, and he, as you said, he's had uh, health issues for quite some time now. I believe I know he had at least one, if not both, legs amputated. It's been quite a while. Kamala was the last gimmick that I believed in, even even though I was plenty old enough to know better. I mean, I'm talking 20 in my 20s. Uh, obviously, I knew he wasn't Kamala, but I think it was the final gimmick where I just couldn't put the gimmick aside and picture him as a normal human being. Until, you know, uh, he came out with shoot interviews and I saw him, uh, you know, backstage at re- independent shows and, and stuff like that. Yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate. I enjoyed the Kamala gimmick growing up. I certainly uh, believed in it uh, in the 1980s. And, uh, yeah, it's just um, it's a shame we've lost another one. Yeah, absolutely. Another one gone too soon for sure. Moving on, as promised, uh, we've added a lot of extras to the show beginning with episode two here. I've got several sound bites queued up for your enjoyment as we take a trip through four weeks of NWA TV, dating from January 21st, 1989 through February 12th, the final TV program before Clash of the Champions. Thanks to places like the WWE Network, YouTube, and beyond, Steve, uh, we're mani- we've managed to review an astounding 15 episodes of NWA TV over this four weekend period, and I look forward to covering all of that with you here today. Yeah. It was, it was quite the, the run there. 15 episodes uh, is definitely a lot. It was fun. Um, 
there's it was different. Each show was different, even though they were held on the same day. And uh, I'm looking forward to going in depth and talking about it. It was, it was a lot of fun. And we've also got some other exciting new features in the show, including a Steiner Watch 89. Steiner Watch 89! Uh, we continue to follow the crazy over character of Rick Steiner. We continue to watch and see how long it'll last, who's going to screw it up, because we know eventually it gets screwed up. So I continue to watch each week, and I'm just curious to see how long it lasts and who's to blame for and see what went wrong. Uh, so we'll keep an eye on Rick Steiner as part of Steiner Watch 89. Steiner Watch 89! And uh, we'll, we'll keep you informed. Also during this program, you'll also find out who the very first Grenade VIP Jobber of the Month is for the month of January 1989 and our very first NWA Top 10 for the month of January 89. Of course, that'll be coming up later in the program after we finish the month of January. You won't want to miss that, guaranteed. And before we get started with the TV reviews, there's some uh, news to get into, some Observer news and other dirt sheet news that uh, I've accumulated. And uh, first is the big news is, as of January 10th, 1989, Dusty Rhodes is gone from the NWA. Dave Meltzer reports he's making the high end of a half a million dollars, expected to take a 20% pay cut at the very least. Meltzer claims that still would have given him more than probably what he would be offered from the WWF. Normally, we give a 10-bell salute to someone who's passed away like Kamala, but in, in more lighthearted spirit here, Dusty's still very much alive in 1989. And instead of a 10-bell salute as he leaves the NWA, uh, we'll give the American Dream a cowbell salute here. So, so long, Dusty Rhodes. Happy trails, Big Dust, and may your polka-dotted pastures be in your future. <laughs> and as Dusty Rhodes leaves the NWA, uh, we got a whole lot of other news to go into. Uh, but actually, Dusty doesn't go straight to the WWF. He... Uh, reportedly purchases 60% of the Florida territory from Steve Kern and Mike Graham and tries to form the PWF promotion, which is supposed to start up with a TV taping on January 25th. Um, obviously, that doesn't go too well, but Steve, I'd like to get your thoughts on Dusty leaving and what you thought uh, might happen here. Like we talked about in the first episode, it was expected uh, that he was going to be out. When you go from the head honcho to, hey, man, we just need you to be a mid-card guy and put people over. I mean, that's not going to sit well with anybody in that from that status to take that hit. So um, going to Florida was interesting. I think it was just a, a place that he felt comfortable. I know he used the AWA a little bit to keep himself on TV until he could uh, get Florida back up and running. He promised a lot of things that he was going to bring a lot of people with him and uh, things like that. So it's interesting. It's kind of a war within itself, uh, not necessarily on the big scale, but uh, I think we all know how what happened with Dusty and where he ends up. So Right. And it this, was more than more than time for a change. And at this point, as, uh, right, you're right. And at this point, um, you know, Dusty had started making claims of names he was going to bring over from the NWA to this PWF promotion. <laughs> names like Gary Hart, Abdullah the Butcher. Uh, he even made claims on Barry Windham. Obviously, one of the names that actually did leave the NWA at this time for Dusty's Florida territory was Al Perez. Another name on the outs was uh, Larry Zabisco who had just reportedly quit for a bigger payday and the world title over in the NWA. So now we're out Al Perez and Larry Zabisco. Gary Hart's out a tag team. Ric Flair's out two guys chasing him for the world championship here. And uh, yeah, it's just it's just that fast. There's so many people diving off the ship, which is kind of interesting because Ted Turner's just taken over. You're guaranteed money. Yeah, it's definitely crazy that some of these guys would jump for, you know, a, a lower promotion like the PWF. 
Uh, I get the Zabisco angle going to the AWA, be with his father-in-law and promise the world title. I, I don't think he's going to get that in the NWA, so that makes sense to a degree. But yeah, you're you're leaving when the money, the guy with all the money comes in to take over. So you know money's going to be made there, and it's going to be had. Whatever issues may you may have had, I would have stuck around for sure just to get that money. Yeah, of everyone involved, I think Zabisco suffered suffered the least because he was guaranteed money from his father-in-law. He went over there. I'm sure he made the some decent money up until the AWA folded. And at that point, he was welcomed back to the WCW. So Zabisco never missed a beat accepting that job. I can't really blame Larry Zabisco on that. Al Perez just makes another poor choice as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Moving on, we got the uh, WWF and NWA at war once again, the promotion wars. The WWF reportedly was trying to air a three-hour Madison Square Garden USA special to go up against the Chi-Town Rumble pay-per-view. Obviously, we know that didn't happen. WWF withdrew their bid to the USA to try to put the MSG show on the television. Uh, a lot of rumors are because of NWA trying to sabotage WrestleMania in return, which they, they technically still did with the Clash of the Champions. Yeah, this is uh, this is one of those things that's pretty hilarious at the end of it. I think they still ended up running. It was this when they ran the face-to-face special on USA anyway. It was the same day as Chi-Town Rumble. You know, I'm not certain. Because I know they possible. ran that three-hour special in February, which didn't make much right. sense to me because it was still like right. a month out from Mania. But, yeah, they didn't run that live show on MSG. But, yeah, uh, them trying to sabotage WrestleMania with WrestleWar and then turn around and get an egg in their face by the execs. They just used it as a ploy to get Vince to drop his pay-per-view fees. So even though Ted had all those a lot of those people on the board with him, Vince was still king as far as pay-per-view goes and where the money's at. So it kind of bit Turner in the butt a little bit. And it's also around this time Vince McMahon goes on and signs James J. Dillon. Uh, I thought that was brilliant for uh, for a move inside the war. Dillon knew how to contact basically every NWA superstar. He had their deals. He knew their deals, their structured deals. He knew when all their contracts ended. He knew how much they were getting paid. So, I mean... You want to talk about a key factor in the NWA, that was J.J. Dillon, to let him just up and leave, and that's what he did with no notice. Just sent them a telegram saying, I'm gone, and I'm with, I'm with Vince McMahon now. I mean, it was brilliant on the, on the side of Vince McMahon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, on screen-wise, they probably didn't lose much when it comes to J.J. Like Meltzer said in the Observer, uh, he knew when contracts were going to be up. He knew what those guys were making. You knew what he could tell Vince to, you know, get them. Hey, if you want this guy, his deal's up this time. He was making this. You can get him by doing this, that sort of stuff. So it was a tremendous get uh, for the office of Vince McMahon, for sure. And then we've got George Scott in his booker. Of course, uh, George Scott uh, had booked uh, big-time matches in the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling Territory back in the late 70s for Jim Crockett. Uh, I think he had, like, maybe a two- to three-year window there where everything he did turned to gold. I don't know that it was necessarily all George Scott. Rumors have always been that it was a little bit of Blackjack Mulligan, uh, Ric Flair giving him ideas and him rolling with them. Of course, he was loaded with talent as well. It didn't hurt that he was loaded with talent from Steamboat to Flair to, to Mulligan to the mass Superstar and beyond. I'm From what I understand, there were some people happy George Scott was coming in. They thought he might be the savior. There were others that weren't so happy. Scott, of course, not you know after a successful run in Mid Atlantic, I think he did a little bit for Leroy McGurk down there in Tri States right before it closed up shop and Bill Watts ran him out of business. He made a stop through Georgia. I know in the early '80s before going over to Vince, I, I want to I want to say it's right around '84, '85. He jumped over to the WWF right during the National Expansion era 
and he probably played a key factor in getting some of his guys over there, like Ricky Steamboat. Of course, they had a falling out. He had a falling out with Vince McMahon. I don't know that he did a whole lot beyond go, I, he went to Dallas in 1986 for World Class. That didn't turn out too well either. Of course, he had no talent to work with there. So it seems like he did an okay job as long as he has the talent surrounding him. Uh, he wasn't really able to make chicken salad out of chicken, you know what. And so George Scott here, we're going to see what he does. There was reports of Eddie Gilbert had tried out for Booker, but the office didn't want another Dusty, an active wrestler in charge of storylines. And this happens again in 1993 when Bill Watts is fired. The, the, uh, the Turner office doesn't want another wrestler in charge. Yeah, I don't. I understand a little bit where they're coming from because, you know, Dusty kind of took advantage throughout the years and kept himself in prominent positions and booked his people that he liked and things like that. It wasn't necessarily, I'm not 100% certain, but, you know, it's, it didn't seem like it was business first. It was more personal first. Let me take care of my guys. Let me take care of myself. And that's that. So I, I get it. But at the end of the day, these guys are the ones that are out there working, getting over and doing all this stuff. So they have a mind for it. We know Eddie can book. He's done it before. And they have a lot of talent there that go on to book shows that maybe could have deserved a chance, like a Jim Cornette um, or something like that. I don't think Paul E. was ready just yet, but sure, definitely. he clearly had a mind. He definitely had a mind even on promos, which you'll, you'll see throughout this episode, that was well beyond his years. So uh, they had a lot of options. But yeah, for George Scott, I mean, it, it's hard to fail when you got young uh, Flair and Steamboat killing it every week or every every night at a house show or whatever the case may be. That's hard to do bad with that product. And then uh, there's reports that Jim Crockett didn't want George Scott in. I guess they, their time together when it ended in the late 70s in Mid-Atlantic, it, didn't, it wasn't an, an amicable split. So uh, Crockett wasn't wanting Scott to come back in as Booker here, but it shows you how out of power Jim, Jim Crockett is by this point because he tried to veto and it didn't work. George Scott remained the, the Booker going forward. Um, also in at this time is Jim Barnett, who was with Scott in the WWF in the, that 84, 85, 86 time period. Barnett and Scott back together again. Barnett, a legend and, as a promoter, made a gazillion dollars over in Australia, owned the Georgia office, played a major part in getting Vince, you know, the, the Georgia office, the WTBS station uh, back in 84. Barnett's here now. Uh, we'll see how that works out. There's a report of George Scott wanting a committee, booking committee, along with Blackjack Mulligan, Paul Jones, Gene Anderson. What's funny is I read Mulligan quit within a matter of days, and he's replaced by Jody Hamilton, who you may know better as the masked assassin. The, Interesting. The uh, issue, I don't think committees would work, really. Well, the issue there is I'm wondering, there's a lot of names there, all older names, old school regional booking ideas. Will it work moving forward into the 1990s on a, on a national level? That's what we're going to see here in the next few months, is if, if, if their booking ideas are going to work here in 1989 on a national scale. In other big news, the bunkhouse stampedes have basically been removed, canceled, uh, erased from the history of the NWA. With Dusty Rhodes gone, the Turner organization has decided to remove the bunkhouse stampede. So uh, there, were, there had been plans of doing the finals at Chi-Town Rumble, but they've completely eliminated it. It no longer exists. I read uh, George Scott. That was one of his ideas. Also, another one, though, is uh, he put the brakes on Kendall Wyndham and Butch Reed as part of the Horseman group. We'll get into that as we do the television, though. Yeah, they kind of were getting pushed that way. Then all of a sudden, it just completely stops within a week. It didn't make any sense. 
<laughs> but uh, with George Scott coming in and changing everything, that makes all the sense in the world. Right. And then there was talk of George Scott trying to throw down some new rules, some uh, unfavorable rules for the wrestlers, especially in this era. The uh, Bill Watts type rules, uh, both inside the ring and outside the ring. I I don't know how long that stuck, uh, how well that got over with the uh, the wrestlers themselves. Yeah, when I was reading these in the Observer, I was like, is this like sarcasm? Because Meltzer, we know Meltzer doesn't trash the NWA at all back in '89. But I was reading these notes, and it was like really no drop kicks, no major moves in the uh, in the first half of the show, or or things like that. And it was just like. This has to be a joke, and then it's come to find out when you start watching the TV and everything, it, it seems to be true. Yeah, he definitely made some changes that didn't make a lot of sense. I don't see how you can get people can get over with when you're taking away a lot of the things that can help a guy get over. All right, and I think with that, I, I think we can get going with the actual television reviews. We're looking at we're going to kick things off with the Saturday morning program, NWA Championship Wrestling, January twenty first, nineteen eighty nine. David Crockett, Jim Cornette on commentary. Uh, we have the Midnight Express over Agent Steel and Trent Knight. Double team for the Midnights as usual. Good stuff. Lane and Eaton uh, nail the Vegematic on night. Six minutes and 30 seconds. Midnights go over. I have a soundbite queued up here of Jim Cornette on commentary during the Midnight Express match. They've got it together. They're blazing new trails. You need a road map, a compass, and a coonskin coon cap to keep track of beautiful Bobby and Superman because they're pioneers doing things in tag team wrestling that have never been seen before. <laughs> I don't, they're tagging in and out quite a lot. Yes, yes, they are. I've mentioned that several times. All right, and so I originally recorded that timestamp just because I like Jim Cornette's comment about them being pioneers, but then I, I kept the, the, the rest of it because David Crockett makes this ridiculous comment. They're, they're tag team. They're tagging up. They're t- tagging quite a bit. And Cornette's just like, uh, yeah, 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 they are. So, so I just thought that was funny. I left that in there. Oh my God. Yeah. Crockett is so bad. I did not miss hearing him at all. It's so yeah. bad. It's funny. Go figure a tag team are tagging quite a bit. Wow. Go figure. Especially smaller guys you know they're out there working fast that's what they do that's their whole that's their whole thing and it's like what do you want them to do stand there and not do anything for five minutes i mean come on david come on (laughs) we move on to abdullah the butcher with gary hart abby with a uh, three-minute win over mike justice and uh after two big elbow drops mike justice man that that guy looked like he might have had something if he had stuck to it six feet four or so Definitely in shape. He had that old, I don't know if you remember the, the Cole twins from the early 90s, WCW, Kent and Keith Cole, but oh, yeah. he had that flat top with that long, flowing Kentucky waterfall mullet going on. I mean, it's just beautiful for 1989. Just just beautiful. But Abby over yeah. Mike Justice here. Just wasn't meant to be for Mike Justice on this night. Here's a promo also I have queued up with uh, Jim Cornette advertising the World Championship Wrestling Program moving to a new time slot. Here we go. This is Jim Cornette of the one and only Midnight Express, and there's an old tradition on at a new time right here. Saturdays on the Superstation World Championship Wrestling, the best action in town. World Championship Wrestling at its new time, only on Superstation TBS. And they don't mention the time. Obviously, they moved to 7.05, but I just thought that was a, a fun little tidbit to throw in there of Cornette promoting the new time, especially since Cornette hates moving on with the times to have to be the one announcing a new time, a new, <laughs> you know, anything new. It's just funny uh, the way Cornette is. So I, I threw that in there as well. Oh, yeah. 
Absolutely. I love Cornette's voice. We move on. Butch Reed, he's managed by J.J. Dillon. Good to see Butch Reed here. I don't think we've seen Reed since WrestleMania four, so it's almost been a year, nine months at least, to see Butch Reed back in action. Gets a win here over Mike Jackson with a flying clothesline off the top rope, three and a half minutes. They do. I love that finisher. I love it. Reed really. It's so simple, hit. but if if you sell it right, if you sell it right, it could be really devastating looking. Like my all time favorite one is Tito at WrestleMania six from Barbarian. He oh, sold yeah. it like a million bucks, and it oh, makes yeah. it look more devastating than it really is. So uh, if done properly, it's a great move. And then uh, they do a promo afterwards. David Crockett asks Reed if he's a bodyguard or a horseman. Like Steamboat, you know, Reed, Reed hadn't been in action probably since WrestleMania four. It was good seeing him here. Uh, Reed really didn't give an answer to Crockett. I don't know what they were going for here. I don't, I don't, I, from everything I've read, there was plans of possibly putting him in the horseman. Uh, I don't understand the whole where the bodyguard thing came from, unless it's just a, ethnicity stereotype, but um, that's what we had there. We move on with a promo from the Varsity Club. It was very basic. They're selling that there's six-man tags coming up on the house shows against the uh, Varsity Club, against the Road Warriors and Abdullah the Butcher. So it wasn't much, but I did like how uh, like Sullivan indirectly gives credit to the roadies, um, saying, like, you know, if you saw the six of us walking down the alley, you're all going to turn and run. I, I, I think he, he realized what he was going against, and it was more of, it wasn't like I'm scared. I know you guys are, you know, tough guys and things like that, and it's going to be tough to beat you, but he basically presented it in a way that, like, they're just as deadly, just as dangerous as the Road Warriors. So, uh, uh, really good ending to the promo. I love Kevin Sullivan in this year, uh, in 89. He's so good. Uh, we move on. Al Perez over Bill Holiday, Alley Copter, four minutes. Al, uh, I think Perez put a little extra spin on this one. Not much else to say about this match. Just another uh, Perez squash. Uh, then we move on to your favorite wrestler, Michael P.S. Hayes. Hayes gets the win over Jerry Price in four and a half minutes with a DDT. But there's something that occurs in this match that I just, I, it blew my mind. Michael Hayes, for no reason whatsoever, attempts a dropkick. And I mean, <laughs> it's, it's one of those flat back bump dropkicks, kind of like Owen Hart does. But unfortunately, he, he doesn't even barely get to the hips of Jerry Price. It was, it was absolutely <laughs> awful. And if it's just absolutely ridiculous, Michael Hayes attempting a dropkick here. Oh, Nevertheless, God. he did get the win. So kudos to Michael Hayes. We go to the last pro, uh, segment of the show. Gary Hart's back out with Al Perez. They're cutting a promo, challenging Ric Flair for the NWA world title. The match is coming up uh, on January 23rd in St. Petersburg, which is near Perez's hometown. Unfortunately, the match doesn't happen because Perez actually leaves for Dusty Rhodes' territory just days before the match is supposed to go down. So the match ends up being Ric Flair versus Eddie Gilbert, which is kind of funny because, honestly, that's probably the better match anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I, the crowd's probably in for a treat since they got Eddie Gilbert instead of Alvarez. And speaking of Alvarez, I do want to touch on one thing during that match. Uh, he, does, he did a pack drop on Holiday, and Holiday damn near landed on his feet. Um, and Cornette made the comment of, yeah, they tried to make one move before he gets his face squashed on television, and we should plot him for that. I thought it was uh, very clever of Cornette to, yeah. you know, give credit to Holiday for actually trying to land on his feet or just make light of the move. Um, but that had to hurt the ankles or something there because it looked pretty rough where that dude he basically landed on the heels of his feet and then fell back. So that, that right. had to have hurt. <laughs> Overall, like, I, I just love Cornette selling it that way. That was great. Yeah, but with Eddie Gilbert being pushed the way he had been here, 
replacing Al Perez, it might be one very rare instance where the replacement is actually better than the original challenger. Definitely an upgrade, for sure. And then we go on to the big one, the W the World Championship Wrestling Saturday night program for January twenty first, the special one hour episode. Of course it's gonna going to feature Rick Flair and Barry Wenham taking out Eddie Gilbert and a mystery partner. The show kicks off with Eddie Gilbert doing a really quick walk over to Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone, just reminding everyone I got a mystery partner coming in today, just getting uh planting some seeds for later on in the program. Yeah, he definitely did a great job of uh getting it over that this the surprise is going to uh it's going to be the biggest shock and the biggest surprise. So he, he definitely made it to where you'd want to tune in just to find out who this guy is. Uh, we kick things off in the ring, unfortunately, with Michael Hayes versus the Russian Assassin number two, which is Jack Victory. They're accompanied by Paul Jones and Russian Assassin one. Hayes gets the win with a roll-up in about six and a half minutes. Just shortly after Russian Assassin number two thought he had pinned Hayes with the assistance of Paul Jones, of course, Referee negated that, and then Hayes snuck in the roll-up to get the win. This was trash. It looks like at the end, he, ch- he tried to cheat, um, and there's no way Teddy, the way Teddy Long was positioned to count, like there was no way he could see that there was cheating being done. And But he stopped counting anyways, and then Hayes got the quick roll-up. But yeah, it, this was a really boring match. Bunch of bunch of arm bars, working the arm, and it was just brutal all around between Hayes and the Russian assassin gimmick. I mean, good lord. And it's evident Six at this point. Too long. Right, absolutely. It's I'd rather watch a squash for the for that period of time <laughs> than these two in the ring. Definitely. It's uh it's very obvious at this point that Hayes and Junkyard Dog seem to be re- re- be replacing the Koloff spots here in a feud. It was supposed to be the Koloffs and the Russian Assassins. Nikita was wisely got the hell out of Dodge uh, when the getting was good, and now we've got Hayes and the Dog feuding with the Russian Assassins for absolutely no reason whatsoever, and this is what we get. Because of it, and this is not the last time we see these guys in the ring together today uh, during this podcast. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. <laughs> uh, we, we continue. Uh, Butch Reed, another squash, just over two minutes, pins George South, uh, following another top rope clothesline. Love the pin here. He got up and put his knee across the chest of South to get the win. This is, uh, even though he had appeared on the, the morning program, this was uh, promoted as his return to the ring. And uh, it was just exciting to see him not only back in a major promotion, because I've always loved Butchery. I loved him in Doom, and I was, I was a big fan of The Natural, even though he didn't do a whole lot in the WWF. I feel like they dropped the ball with him there. And maybe maybe towards the end of that, that run, he wasn't exactly excited to be there either. But um, this is Reed's return to the NWA, and uh, it was cool to see them put him with J.J. Dillon, because that meant that they had big plans for him, or you would have thought they were going to have big plans for him anyway. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Reed Reed is awesome. I've really enjoyed him over these last, you know, couple weeks of TV. Uh, I love his finish. I love the cocky pin uh, where he's flexing. I mean, this was a short squash where he just beat the brakes off of George South, and uh, these are the kind of squash matches I like. Um, but one thing that was funny, the start of this match, we came back. They came back from commercial, and Reed had his jacket off, but he quickly put it back on just so he could take it off <laughs> to start the After match. The commercial, I was like, yeah. I was like, what are you doing? He took it off a little too early, but he couldn't get back on before they came back. So uh, it's pretty funny. And that's uh, something he he probably learned, you know, working for the WWF as polished as that company was. I don't know that that's something you would pick up on a Crockett show. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Eddie Gilbert is back out for the second time. Once again, reminding everyone the big main event coming up, he's building and building to it. He teases that the mystery partner that he has planned for the match 
could beat Flair, Wyndham, and J.J. Dillon all by himself. So that draws some more intrigue from the fans. I like that they kept promoting the match, building up the, the suspense throughout the show. The surprise didn't let down either, so everything worked out really well. Yeah, definitely. The surprise definitely didn't uh, disappoint. I like how they did this, like you said. Like, you know, every two or three segments, they had Eddie Gilbert out. They had him out a couple times, you know, 45-minute show uh, after commercials. Uh, that was more than enough to keep the, the anticipation growing uh, for the match. Another promo, as the Varsity Club make their way out, they're getting ready for a tag team match. Uh, prior to the match, we get a Varsity Club promo. Obviously, Mike Rotunda looking for that TV title, once again, held by Rick Steiner, uh, Sullivan. Uh, on the microphone talking about their upcoming matches with the Road Warriors. And the six-man tags also with the Roadies teaming with Abdullah against all three Varsity Club members. And you asked me to grab an audio bite here of Kevin Sullivan during this promo, and we're going to play that for everyone right now. Another day that's coming very soon is with the Road Warriors. Obviously, the Road Warriors are still the favorites. And they're the guys that people say they're fierce. Aren't you afraid of them? They left me a long time ago when I was strapped to the tree of woe for six days and six nights. Fear left me when they sent me to the sweat box for four days and four nights. Road Warriors, the only time I've ever gone into a bar and seen guys with makeup on their faces when when I took a wrong turn and went to the wrong bar. You may be the fiercest bullies of the block. You may be fearsome and you may be the toughest Around, that was until the Varsity Club came about. You see, Dr. Death, Kevin Sullivan, you always say you dine on danger and snack on death. That's right, you're going to snack on death all night long because the doctor is going to deliver it. And right here is danger. And danger is this. Hawk, I'm singling you out, and I'm going to reach down in your throat, Hawk, and I'm going to pluck out your heart. You ain't so fearsome to me. And that was Kevin Sullivan cutting a promo on the Road Warriors. And, uh, you know, I love how serious Sullivan could be and still try to throw wink and nod comments in there without he knew what he couldn't say on TBS. And he would still throw these wink and nod comments in there like, we took a wrong turn and went to the wrong bar. You knew what he meant, you know. But I just oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> I thought that was fun. But I know you wanted that promo in there because you really liked that Tree of Woe story he told there. And Sullivan was yeah. just a great, great promo when he was on or when he when he felt like when he really felt the character he was portraying. And obviously he had a lot of fun in the varsity club. Yeah, he definitely did. I, I, one of the things I, I marked down is I don't I have no idea, like, why the varsity club is together or why Kevin Sullivan was in it. But compare this to like the Dungeon of Doom days and Kevin Sullivan is so much better here than anything he was doing then. And especially and I think, he, like you said, when he's invested and he cares. He's at and he's at the top of his game. He's one of the best, and I think when you're dealing with the Road Warriors and you're you're going in the match with those guys, and it's like right up your wheelhouse. He's clearly invested. He's clearly uh, excited to be a part of a feud like that. I love watching him work. I love his promos, and I I really really enjoyed him throughout the this whole uh, all 15 of these episodes. Man, he's one of the guys I actually look forward to. And Just awesome. He, yeah, and he he definitely was one of the best on the mic. And uh, we move on to a match, tag team match, involving Mike Rotunda and Kevin Sullivan over Randy Hogan and Gene Miller. Four minutes, 15 seconds. Rotunda pins Miller with uh, one of his butterfly suplexes. Rotunda, man, 
what an athlete. And and this was maybe the only time in his career that I really enjoyed Mike Rotundo as this Captain Mike Rotundo of the of Varsity Club. And I think he really felt that gimmick. And I think it took him a little bit, but he really got into that gimmick and it really worked for him. And I don't know that anything uh, ever worked for him again. So it's great seeing uh, the Varsity Club here. They look great. They're doing great. And honestly, what started off as maybe a mid-card team just in these last couple months, they've really been elevated to where I take them seriously. I take them maybe not at Road Warrior level, but certainly as competitors for the Road Warriors, certainly as a semi-main event on a show where maybe I wouldn't have prior. So they've done it. They've done a good job building themselves up while getting all this TV time. Yeah, I absolutely agree. If they came in and got to the Road Warriors almost immediately, like, I'd be like, hey, this is a waste of time. But by this point, Rotunda had that super long TV title run. Sullivan's at the top of his game. You had a guy like Dr. Death, Steve Williams, who can work with the best of them. And he, he's that big physical type that can just match the Road Warriors. He may be the only one that can in physicality. It, it was a weird combination on paper, but when you watch it together and see how they work and do it and see what they do, uh, I really, really enjoy the varsity club. I never thought I would say that, but after watching all this TV, man, these guys are at the top of their game, and they're awesome. It's truly awesome. And I was never a big fan of Dr. Death as part of the varsity club the first time around, but as I go back and watch it now, it's growing on me, and, and it works for me. Uh, before, I, I hated the idea. I hated the random turn. I didn't like him joining the varsity club, but uh, it works here this time for me. So, yeah, we'll see a lot more of the varsity club throughout these episodes we recap. And it's main event time on World Championship Wrestling, and it's the big one, the one that they promised us. Uh, Ric Flair, Barry Windham waiting in the ring as Eddie Gilbert makes his way out, along with a mystery partner, and it doesn't disappoint. Flair and Windham are anxiously awaiting the arrival of Eddie Gilbert's partner. And Tony, I don't, I don't believe what we're seeing here. Geometric Steamboat, it's the Dragon. Ricky, the Dragon Steamboat, will be the partner of Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert in this main event. Rick Flair, Barry Windham, in disbelief that Ricky the Dragon Steamboat has arrived. And Ricky Steamboat has arrived. You know, Steve, I love that music, that Alan Parsons Project Serious theme. Makes me think of two things. Makes me think of Ricky Steamboat. It makes me think of the Michael Jordan-led Chicago Bulls. Either way, you can't lose. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, I love the intro videos of watching Bulls back in the day with the light show and then the running of the Bulls that they did. And then that music, it's just uh, it's synonymous with greatness, no matter which way you think about it. I think Tony marked out more than anybody. <laughs> he was so pumped. And it felt genuine. I, I'm sure he knew he was there, but... The way he sold it, it just felt genuine. Like Tony was legit happy to see him back, um, even though Tony wouldn't be around much longer. But uh, he seemed really excited and real happy to see him again. Right. And what a phenomenal talent Ricky Steamboat is. You can't deny that. And what a huge coup for George Scott and Ted Turner and the NWA to get someone like Ricky Steamboat. Because Ric Flair was, I don't know, his, his, his list of challengers wasn't looking too hot. And now you got Ricky Steamo right at the top of things. That really helped a lot. And I think a lot of that probably it played into Dusty Rhodes leaving the company because Dusty Rhodes was the reason Steamboat left the NWA for the WWF. He wasn't necessarily happy with how he was going to be booked, with Dusty being the, you know, the big, big guy on top. And Steamboat left Crockett back in early 85 for the WWF. And 
it's just so funny that as soon as Dusty leaves, here we have Ricky Steamboat back in the NWA. Yeah, I didn't know there was some animosity or heat there between Steamboat and Rhodes. It's just weird seeing Ricky Steamboat have heat with anybody. Uh, <laughs> like you, his yeah. look on TV, it, it just seems like he's that's him. It, it doesn't. It's not a gimmick. It's not a work. It's not anything. That's just Ricky Steamboat. To me, that's how he would be off camera. But I'm sure he took pride in what he was doing. And by '85, he's definitely done enough to earn a top level spot with any company. And uh, if Dusty wasn't going to give it to him, then more power to him to leave. He had some great feuds in the WWF and, of course, WrestleMania 3 and all that, even stuff prior to that. Yeah, he didn't really have anybody left. Uh, Perez and Zabisco was kind of getting groomed to get those matches. I don't know for how long, but I'm assuming over the next couple months. And then they both up and left for greener pastures, so to speak. And then, so they were kind of stuck with either, you know, rushing maybe a sting or, you know, going, going with Luger, but the Flair made it pretty clear that Luger wasn't getting another shot, so they would look kind of stupid to go back to that. So Steamboat was huge. He, he kind of saved the day a little bit when he came back. And as you might expect, uh, Steamboat and Gilbert go over Flair and Wyndham in just over 15 minutes. Steamboat pins Flair, as he should have, with a crossbody off the top rope, proving he can pin the NWA world champion. We come back from break. Steamboat comments on his quest to win the World Heavyweight Championship. A few minutes later, he's confronted. Flair, Wyndham, Dylan all back at ringside. They confront Steamboat. They argue. They weren't prepared to face him. Flair goes nuts. Flair does one of his great irate gimmicks out there. He's he's, uh, he's in another world, <laughs> livid at what just oh transpired uh, with Steamboat surprising so him great. and pinning him. Yeah, it was it was Flair really sold that. I, when Flair did that, where whenever he whenever he broke down in one of those those crazy flair promos I, I, you could buy it and it was just a great angle oh, yeah. great reaction for from flair to sell it over after the after the finish of the match just a job well done from all the parties involved i agree 100 percent. it was awesome and rick flair really took that extra mile for him and uh really put it over i think um flair way he presents himself that he's calm cool and collected and is that guy that never loses his composure and Never does any of that. And then all of a sudden, Steamboat comes in and beats him on his first night back. And Flair's like, you don't do this to me, essentially. And it was it was just awesome. I, I really loved it. The match was really good. Uh, they did a great job of, like you said, developing and putting Steamboat right in the title picture right away, immediately. Uh, when you come in and you pin the world champ like you did, I mean, there's no, there's no other reason for him to go anywhere but the top. So um, just a side note on this one, I love that during the match, Gilbert was the guy that was getting all the heat put on him. And uh, he took a beating. But the best part, the little things that Gilbert did and the way his matches were booked, uh, he would always try to get like that sneaky win because he's an underdog. Like he would only, he'd try to do roll ups. He would, uh, you know, small package people and just do those little things because, yeah, he's getting his brakes beat off of him. But he's always thinking, he's always trying to get that quick win on somebody when they're not paying attention. I think that goes well with the underdog you know, gimmick that he was running with uh, at the time. So, um, Gilbert's just amazing. It wasn't just Steamboat that looked good in this match. Gilbert did his part, and he was awesome. Yeah, and I think Eddie understood his size differential from some of the larger opponents he was in the ring with, and I think he was wise in booking himself, or or not necessarily booking himself, but wrestling that way when he was in the ring. He understood that maybe that's all it took sometimes to show that he had the heart, the determination to continue through. It, it was a good characteristic for himself, uh, so I agree with you. The one thing I had, did you hear, did you pick up on some of the booze for oh, Steamboat? Yeah. yeah. They didn't seem too, like, 
thrilled that he was back. Like I said, Tony marked out more than all of them, but at the finish, they booed a little bit, and then as soon as he started cutting his promo, the crowd was booing a little bit. So I don't, and that that continues on with the promos, but that's not necessarily all Steamboat's fault, or maybe it is, depending on who decided to give him the character in which he p- portrays here, or maybe he doesn't portray. Maybe it's his real life persona, but it doesn't go over well with the uh, typical wrestling fan base, and we'll discuss that as the episodes go on here. I don't know that Ricky Steamboat was ever a top draw, and I don't want to upset anyone when I say that. I don't know that he was selling the tickets that Hulk Hogan would or Randy Savage would or even that Ric Flair would. Obviously, Ric Flair always had his fans, so there were always going to be a smatter of boos against anyone taking on Ric Flair. I think as we see in the upcoming episodes of the other programming over the next couple of weeks, Steamboat's promos doesn't do himself any favor either with the fans. And uh, we'll get into that later on. And I also want to touch, before we move on to the next episode, I also want to touch on that. Also later on, we'll find out that there was clearly a different planned debut for Steamboat here on on this episode of World Championship Wrestling. But at some point, the plans changed because there's some shows taped out of order and they reference a completely different angle than the one we see here. And we'll get into that when we get to those episodes later on. Yeah, classic Um, NWA. And we move on to a special Saturday edition of the NWA main event, also January 21st, 89. Host Tony Schiavone and J.J. Dillon. Odd to think both of those men will be gone here within the next week or two. Uh, All matches on this show were taped from the Omni in Atlanta on January 1st, 1989. We kick things off with Western States champion Larry Zbysko over Kendall Wyndham in six minutes. This was really just an extended squash. Zbysko dominates Kendall here. Uh, Kendall makes a comeback, mounts Zabisco in the corner. Zabisco double legs him, uh, drops him to the ground, puts his feet on the ropes, and gets the one, two, three. It was really cheated, treated like a squash. It's sad to say, say Larry's gone now. I was, I was really enjoying his character here. The last couple weeks, uh, he's been on the NWA television program. Unfortunately, he's out of here, and Kendall Wyndham's going to go over a cha- uh, character change himself in the next couple weeks. Yeah, I saw the match here and open it. Um, but one thing I did like about this match that I wanted to point out was at the end, Larry got the feet on the ropes. Right. And Teddy Long made sure that his whole body was out of view of the feet of Larry so it's not too obvious that he couldn't see. Uh, he made a point where he couldn't see his feet. Uh, and uh, that was good refereeing by Teddy's part. Absolutely, yeah. The NWA had no shortage of good referees, smart referees. Tommy Young was one. People forget Teddy Long. Not that Teddy Long was a referee, but he was a good referee. In fact, when he first came over from the WCW to the WWF, he, he was a referee there before being turned into an on-air character. Uh, also on yeah. this main event episode, Joint in Progress, a TV title match from the studio, Rotunda and Rick Steiner. We saw it from last week's World Championship Wrestling, so we'll skip that. Uh, that match ended with uh, Dr. Death interfering, causing a disqualification. Next match from the Omni, Kevin Sullivan battles Eddie Gilbert. Sullivan cheats like crazy in this match. Gilbert just won't give it up. It's like you were talking before. Gilbert just keeps coming back. He won't give up. It's a great storytelling from Eddie Gilbert. Teddy Long takes a ref bump. Uh, Sullivan crotches Gilbert on the top rope. Sullivan goes to get the referee, and this is, this is a great backfire. I love this story storyline back or uh, storytelling backfiring. Sullivan crotches Gilbert, but Teddy Long's down. Took a bump, so Sullivan has to go revive Teddy Long in order to get the cover. In the meantime, Gilbert recovers and rolls Sullivan up from behind. So Eddie Gilbert gets the roll up, as you mentioned earlier, one of his uh, favorite things to do, and gets the win in eight minutes here. Yeah, I definitely like this match. It was really good. 
and again, I, the, the finish was perfect for the gimmick that Eddie did uh, was doing at this time. So uh, good stuff all around from both guys. Uh, we finished off the episode with the Midnight Express taking on the original Midnight Express, which I thought was kind of cool. We haven't gotten to see these two teams go at it two-on-two yet. Very cool things I liked early on in the match. Uh, Stan Lane Atomic drops Randy Rose onto a chair, and I just I really couldn't believe that, what I was seeing here in 1989, uh, NWA with Stan Lane uh, using the chair in the middle of a match. Yeah, that that, that looked painful. Um, I wouldn't want to take that bump at all. Um, but yeah, to start that match out like that was interesting and uh, definitely different than anything else you were seeing uh, around these parts in 89, for sure. Uh, the finish sees uh, Midnight Express hit a double flapjack on Dennis Condry. Polly dangerously comes in with a cell phone to break up the pin, but Cornette comes in and nails Polly with a big punch and chases him around the ringside. The crowd's going nuts for this, by the way. Meanwhile, Dennis Condry uses a distra- distraction to pull some type of foreign object out of his tights. He nails Bobby Eaton with it, gets the cover in about 13 minutes. It was an okay match, but the finish was really hot. Yeah, the um, I thought Eaton looked a bit best out of all of them. It was a typical match. It was nothing special, especially with the four that were involved. It could have been better. But yeah, typical finish um, in these type of matches. I'll, I'll say this much as, as we were winding down that episode. It was getting awfully close to the end of the show, and I swear I thought we were going to get one of those we're out of time finishes. Uh, but they got right down to the wire, but we did get a, clean, uh, a clear-cut finish on, on the show, so I was really happy with that. Yeah, we got three clean finishes on this episode, which was definitely different. I mean, not clean, but, I mean, they had three finishes where there was a winner, uh, which was definitely different than what you normally see. We move on to the next week, January 28th, and it's a loaded weekend of results. I believe we have four shows of results this weekend. I'm thinking Championship Wrestling, Worldwide, Pro, and then the World Championship Wrestling show as well. So let's get moving. Uh, David Crockett's still here, hasn't left yet. He's hosting with Polly Dangerously. We kick things off with Polly's original Midnight Express over George South and Gene Miller. Conjury hits the what's now known as the skull crushing finale, though I think Conjury did it much better. But Conjury hits the the uh, the full Nelson reverse leg sweep and gets the win in about five minutes. Yeah, I called it the stroke. It looks like Jeff Jarrett's finisher too. But yeah, skull crushing finale. It was awesome to see in '89, and I thought Conjury did it better as well. I like George South as a jobber. Uh, he had a great look. He's just just awesome. I really enjoy his work. And like, like kind of what we talked about before, I, I just don't buy the original Midnights. I mean, they're great workers, but for 1989, they just didn't work as far as what you'd want out of appeal so, uh, on the appeal side for a tag team. Decent match, just a squash, but uh, all in all, I'm not a huge fan of the original Midnights outside of Paul Lee. Yeah, and I think without Paul Lee, they would have been in a, a lot of trouble trying to get over uh, the team of Condry and Randy Rose in 89. Not to take anything away from Condry, I was a big fan of Dennis Condry's work. Randy Rose has the personality of wallpaper, and that's really all I can say about that. Yeah, Rose is rough. We move along. Abdullah the Butcher over Rick Allen. Uh, I am not really a fan of Abdullah the Butcher in any era, but certainly not here. He does the the least amount of offense he possibly can on every one of these episodes it's the same thing he grabs them in yeah. some sort of what they refer to as a choke i'm not really sure how to describe it he gets behind the guy and kind of digs his fingers underneath their their chin the or underneath, yeah underneath their jawline and it kind of just stands there doing that for two or three minutes and he drops an elbow and it's over i obviously not impressive and i i don't even 
want to see him on the program. But he does the same thing here to Ricky Allen. We get that choke and the elbow. Three minutes, Abdullah goes over. We get a promo from Gary Hart and Abdullah. Uh, Abby goes crazy, tosses the podium. He de- supposedly destroys Polly's phone while he's out there on the promo. And the less said about that, the better for me. Yeah, I'm, with you. I'm not a fan of, of Abdullah the Butcher at all. I put that down here. He's uh, trash. He's lazy. I think Gary Hart on the during the match on commentary, he called it the Pacaya or something like that. Like that yeah, Gary, Gary Hart was old. notorious for coming up with just random names, and he would change them week to week at times as well. Yeah. That was very obvious when you watched yeah. the week to week in World Class, the things he did with Kabuki and the Magic Dragon. He would just change stories from week to week without hesitation. And yeah, I, the only yeah. thing I liked about this, the whole thing was dangerously selling the fact that he was scared to death of Abdullah. He made the segment, the interview segment anyway, worthwhile. And Cornette did the same thing. They both knew how to get Abdullah over. Yeah. Uh, we have the Russian assassins in a squash match. I can't believe I'm, I'm reading this, these notes. Uh, the Russian assassins are getting squash matches, this time over Bob Emery and uh, Trent Knight. <laughs> Our boy Trent Knight. Um, but, yeah, he, they used the demolition finisher. Was, this was a dud. And the one thing that point, the one thing that I put down on this one was uh, Paul Lee on commentary. He's like, "How come there's no good guys on this on this show for me to insult?" And that's uh, and that's the only reason the ratings are up on this show. He says, yeah. "Get him some good guys out here to to insult, or I'm going to lose my reputation." So uh, I think he ends up saying that uh, repeatedly. <laughs> Sting and Hayes, will, Sting and Hayes will be out later. He's like, "Oh, yeah. good, I can't wait for that." <laughs> right? Yeah, typical Paul Lee. Uh But yeah, so the Russian assassins here. I thought they tried. The match still wasn't very good. At one point, David Crockett says, Ivan Koloff helped train most of this team. And I'm sitting here thinking, there's two members of the Russian Assassins. He helped train most of the team? I mean, did he help train Jack Victory and half of the Angel of Death? I, I It's just classic <laughs> David Crockett for you. Yeah, he has no idea what he's talking about. Did yeah, Ivan but- train Paul Jones? No. <laughs> I don't even know who yeah, came first. Ivan exactly. Paul Jones. But, uh, exactly. Yeah, they hit the dem- demolition finish on Bob Emery in about four and a half minutes. The Russians go over. This yeah. is our very first promo from Paul Jones since we've been reviewing this. I'm very thankful for that. I'm glad we're past the Jones Army era, and I didn't have to listen to any of that. But Paul Jones here with the promo, he doesn't wait. You know, he doesn't want anyone as good as Flair. That's what he says in his promo. They they ask him about <laughs> acquiring talent, and his response is. Uh, someone like a Ric Flair, he says, I don't want anyone as good as Flair. I don't I don't even understand. And that's classic Paul Jones promo right there. Yeah, I don't get it either. Uh, he's like, so, I was like, so you don't want the world champion on your uh, on your team. But he, he, you, he rationalized it by saying that he wants to be able to teach the talent that he adds to his stable. Right. Okay. I mean, but why not get an established guy that can win you the title? Yeah, I but Paul, Paul Jones promos never let me down. From there, they, they show a replay of the Steamboat and Gilbert versus Flair and Wyndham match from World Championship Wrestling. Obviously, we already know what happened there. They continue on with the program. I, this is where I made my notes about dangerously, continuously saying that there's too many bad guys on this episode. I, I need good guys so I can, I can make fun of them and, and get, get ratings. Yeah. Uh, yep. And he says that because, once again, we get another heel squash. It's uh, Mike Rotunda and Dr. Death out over Eddie Sweat and Mike Justice. Oh man, that that fin, that's that's a submission move that he had on Sweat, where he just got on the top of him and like elevated his legs and drove his head down into the mat. Oh right. my god, <laughs> I would not want that. I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of that. That's a mat burn for days right there, right across the face. Uh, it's just different looking, and I I, I love I loved it. I enjoyed it. 
Yeah, I wrote down in my notes, uh, Dr. Death stretches and tosses around the job guys here. Eddie Sweat specifically. Rotunda pins Sweat after a, a sweet-looking double underhook suplex. Uh, the match goes about five minutes. And then they follow that up with a, a promo from the Varsity Club. Rotunda mocks Michigan graduates being uh, retarded. <laughs> Rotunda really, I felt like he really felt his gimmick at this point, you know, and he really, he had passion and energy in his promo, something he never had before or again as far as, far as I ever was concerned. Yeah, I mean, he, he calls him a moron, a retard, stupid, almost every single promo, but they were believable. Like, he really felt like he was better than Rick Steiner, so these promos wow. wouldn't work today because you're calling no. people names and all that, but for that time period, it definitely worked, and I, I enjoy them. I, I love the Varsity Club now. I, I'm sold. And we uh, have one more match on the program. It's Michael Hayes teaming with Sting over Agent Steel and Jerry Price. First thing I wrote here was, Sting with a flying head scissors, and, it, and he did a great job with it. I, it's just something you don't don't expect from Sting, and it came out of nowhere. He just busts out this uh, nice flying head scissors uh, early on in the match. It shows you goes to show you everything that Sting was able to do and kind of cut back on as he as he got older, and certainly when his after the knee injury in 1990. But I love how Sting does the flying head scissors. So Michael Hayes wants to play a game of top this. So what does he do? He tries the drop kick again. W T F. He failed uh, again. Notice I used the word tried. Uh, yeah, Stinger's, Stinger splash by Sting, and then a DDT from Hayes on Jerry Price ends this in just three and a half minutes. The guys, you know, they come out for a promo after the match. Sting is not the best promo to begin with, but certainly not in this time frame. And he's following Michael Hayes' lead, so they're both quoting songs at this point, which... I wasn't a fan of Hayes doing it, but Sting doing it too just made it double bad. Yeah. So Sting stood out like a sore thumb to me. Like he could have been a major, major star. It's just fascinating to think like what McMahon could have done with him, with the machine behind him that McMahon had. Not taking anything away from WCW and that, that sort of thing or his career in general. But to me, like Sting never hit that next level. And you see what happened with the Warrior and Sting's probably 10 times the worker that warrior is. But if he had that opportunity to be with me, man, in, in the late eighties, early nineties, it's only, it's amazing what Sting could have been. My only concern, you know, would have been there is there's only enough room for so many people at the top in the WWF and Sting being so young, he wasn't necessarily of warrior's body type, even though Sting was in great shape. Don't get me wrong, but you know, Vince and the, yeah. uh, the bodies. It's yeah. just, I wonder where he would have been on the card. Would he have ever been able to achieve that top level of success that he did in the NWA over in the WWF? Because with Warrior, Hogan, and, you know, at times Savage and other guys on the top, it, it just, I don't know if there would have been room for Sting to break that barrier. He obviously probably would have yeah. been just as well known, if not more well known, simply because of the, the WWF machine behind him. But I don't know that he yeah. would have ever reached the success as a champion, or if that makes it or a main eventer over in the WWF, yeah. at least at least in this era. Yeah, at least like right now. But I think if he was there and had that progressive push that maybe like a Bret Hart got, where he started out maybe in a tag team, worked his way up to mid-card, and then when all those big guys like Hogan and Warrior left, he would have been in prime position to be right there with Bret and Sean and those guys to where he could have been. I know that wrestling was down as a whole at that point, but it's just interesting to think about for sure. We move to NWA Worldwide, January 28th, 
Tony Schiavone and David Crockett are both gone. Uh, they were initially the hosts of Worldwide, so they've both left at this point, or at least the Worldwide taping. Uh, we kick things off with a small clip before the, the program of Kendall Wyndham. We learned that he's, he turned on Eddie Gilbert during a tag team match against his brother Barry Wyndham and J.J. Dillon. Uh, my first take was, I used to love how the NWA would come on and before the opening credits, we would get a clip of something hot, an angle typically, or a, a couple spots in a big match uh, of something that just happened recently that we might get a, a further glimpse into later on in the show. It really kept your attention for the entire program. Yeah, I agree. It grabs your attention right away. Um, it makes you want to stick around to find out what exactly happened and what's the follow-up with it. Um, but when, when did that happen? Like, when did Kendall trade? Was that at, like, a house show? or? My my guess would have been it would have been on uh, one of the syndicated programs on January 21st that we didn't have access to. It's kind of interesting that they have Kendall do the heel turn here and join a line, a line with his brother, Barry. Show kicks off with the Midnight Express. That's... Uh, Jim Cornette's Midnight Express over Mike Jackson and Mike Ju Justice. The jobbers actually jump the Midnights to start the match. Good match. Eaton hits the, the Alabama jam during the match. Double flapjack ends it real fast. Uh, minute and a half. Nothing match. And you'll find on Worldwide Pro, most matches don't go more than uh, two, three minutes tops. Which I, I find intriguing that. because these same exact matches take place on World Championship Wrestling. They seem to go five, six, seven minutes. They wrestle the same guys on the syndicated programs, and, this, and those matches tend to go 90 seconds to two minutes. So kind of interesting. Are they just doing that to fill time? Are they just doing that to fill time on the two-hour taping? I think that's the way it was. I think that's the way it was always structured, just to yeah. showcase, yeah. showcase the wrestler out there. Otherwise, you'd that's end up with 20 matches every week. You'd have to send guys yeah. out there repeatedly. That makes sense. Uh, we move on to a Polly Dangerously promo. Basically announces the loser leaves contract. Uh, Cornette also responds, and I, I got a soundbite queued up with that. All right, David, thank you very much. I tell you what, it's in such a volatile situation. Obviously, in May end, when one of them gets rid of the other, we're talking about Polly Dangerously and Jim Cornette. Well, as you can see, that right there didn't last too long. The goof's still laying there, but people think... They can jump the Midnight Express from behind. We haven't changed anything that we do. And Polly Dangerously, I finally got you where I want you, brother. It's all arranged. I got the match I want. And Polly, you're going to be history, you and those punks of yours. Jim, just a second. I don't know if you've heard the statement that Polly Dangerously has made. And I think you need to listen to it. You you not, a... We got to interrupt my interview time. With I'm it. sorry. Let's take a look at it right now from Polly Dangerously. It's over. It's over, it's over. There's no more bunkhouse stampedes for my boys and the reason, Magnum TA. The reason, ladies and gentlemen, it's been approved. Yes, it has. I got the memorandum right here. It's been approved. Jim Cornette, I got you just where I want you. If you want to know why my boys are out of the bunkhouse stampedes, you better call your mama. You better call your lawyer. It's been approved. Jim Cornette, you're out of the NWA. The last words, Jim Cornette, you're out you know, of the NWA. It's what you know, said. the only good thing about looking at that punk on a monitor is his head's only this big instead of this big like it is in real life. Every kind of shortcut that there is to be taken, Paulie Dangerously is going to take it. Well, let me tell you something, Paulie. Bunkhouse stampedes or no, we know how to take some shortcuts too, brother. We've been masters at it for a long time. You know every man in his life. He's got a quest. He's got a dream. He's got a goal in life. Christopher Columbus wanted to go to America. Neil Armstrong wanted to go to the moon. Chevy Chase wanted to go to Wally World. And, Polly, I want to get you out of professional wrestling. That's my mission. That's my quest. That's my goal in life. And, Polly Dangerously, 
I'm going to fix you up, punk, where decent people don't have to look at you on their TV screens and where all the wrestling fans don't have to look at you leeching off of others in the wrestling ring. Beautiful Bobby and Sweet Stan are taking a big risk along with me. But I'm taking the biggest risk, and I'm sure details are going to be more available next week. But I finally got you, Polly, where I want you. And uh, that's Cornette and Polly doing some of their best work getting over their big six-man loser leaves town match right there. I love that Cornette even found a way to reference Wally World in this promo. Yeah, that was great. I really enjoyed it the first time I heard it. Um, but then he cuts the same similar promo throughout the rest of the shows. Um, not as good as the first time you hear it, but uh, definitely, definitely awesome. Cornette had a way with words, and you'll see another one, or you'll hear another one later on, because uh, where he does something similar, but it's a lot more violent in nature. Um, but yeah, great, great work by Cornette and Paulie there. Up next is a promo with uh, Barry and Kendall Wyndham. They're now together. They're now apparently a tag team. I made note here that Barry Wyndham referred to Kendall as the newest member of the Horsemen. So it was official. It was uh, officially said on TV at one point that Kendall Wyndham had joined the Horsemen. They have a tag team match here. Go over Keith Steinborn and Bob Holiday. This is a good one. Kendall beats Holiday in about three minutes with a with a simple hammer lock. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, Kendall even looked at the ref like, what the heck is going on? Like, why did you stop it? Um, but yeah, uh, this came out of nowhere and it was abrupt. It wasn't one of those finishes that you could see coming, but yeah, definitely weird how that one ended. And then, uh, we follow that with Butch Reed over Max MacGyver. Again, the flying clothesline ends it. They do another promo. Magnum TA interviews Butch Reed and JJ Dillon. Uh, the question continues to be asked, what is Reed doing? Is he a bodyguard? Is he a member of the horseman? What's going on? They refuse to answer the question outright. I, I still don't get what the idea here was, what did it matter if he was managing him? JJ's plainly said that he, he, he brought Butch Reed in because he, of his talent, which makes sense. I don't understand why it matters otherwise what his role is if, if he's in the ring wrestling and, he, and he's getting, you know, getting the job done. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I, I think clearly when JJ leaves, they kind of drop it and just move on. But, uh, it didn't make any sense to me. Like he would say, it's none of your business while I'm here. They need to turn around and immediately say, I'm here to hurt people. So it's like, first of all, it don't matter what, why you're here, but now you're going to tell us why you're here. So I don't know. It was weird to me and didn't make sense at all. Next is a big time matchup with Michael Hayes and the junkyard dog taking on the Russian assassins. You know, sometimes a match looks good on paper, but it doesn't deliver. Sometimes a match looks eh on paper, but it over delivers. This is neither of those times. This looked like crap on paper, toilet paper, and the ring should have been filled with toilet paper because this match was the drizzling you-know-what. <laughs> I mean, Hayes, just, oh, everyone in the match, but Michael Hayes, I, I don't get it. To be 27, uh, just, just to be this dreadful after this many years in the business, I just don't get it. Yeah, it's, it's bad. I mean, JYD... He's clearly past his prime. Hayes is terrible. The assassins can't get out of town fast enough. And then on top of all that, you get a DQ finish. Yeah, that was another wow. thing I was going to... Hayes makes the hot tag to the dog. Dog comes in, throws a few punches. All four men get in the ring. Dog has one of the Russians up against the ropes, and Paul Jones just randomly trips Dog right in front of the referee. We get a disqualification. Match goes maybe two and a half minutes. <laughs> This was uh, nothing short of painless. I mean, I wish I could say that with, with the match going so short, but this was, it was just bad. That's the only good thing about the match. It was only two and a half minutes. 
Well, we go to Cro- David Crockett with the Junkyard Dog and Hayes, so we get a little more of your favorite man, Michael. Uh, Hayes continues to steal rock music lyrics. It's just lazy, not cool. He, tr- he tries to make himself sound so cool, and it's just baby face Michael Hayes just isn't working. No, it's not. Um, I agree. What, what, what did Paulie call him? Plagiarism specialist or something like that? Well, that doesn't uh, mean that's, that's exactly what he is. Because <laughs> he's just stealing uh, all the music lyrics, a different one every week, I guess. Um, but yeah, this is terrible. We got the Varsity Club out next. It's Rotunda and Sullivan over Eddie Sweat, and I couldn't make out who his partner was. Doesn't really matter. Match goes two minutes. Rotunda wins with the butterfly suplex, and then Sullivan comes in, hits a couple double stomps to finish the guy off. Varsity Club follows up with the typical promo, just the you know the same old stuff going on the roadies, going on Rick Steiner. I was just gonna say about the Kevin Sullivan promo, talking about yeah. how he went into a saloon. Him and Mike went into a saloon and saw two chicks with all their makeup on. And then when they turned the lights on and the makeup was off, they were ugly. And basically saying that without the makeup, they're chickens, uh, the road warriors. Uh, right. I thought it was really good. I'm just really enjoying Sullivan <laughs> at this point. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with that. Definitely not. We go back-to-back promos from the Varsity Club uh, over to Ric Flair. Magnum TAs with Ric Flair. Uh, he talks about Steamboat pinning Rick, But Flair says Steamboat's never been the champion. Uh, you can go to a Super Bowl, but if you don't win in, it doesn't matter. Flair claims that Steamboat's pin on him uh, doesn't matter. It doesn't count, even though, you know, Flair's acting irate all throughout this. He's trying to convince himself that uh, the Steamboat pinning him doesn't count. It was a good promo. It was the, the whole the whole angle was a great sh- shock, you know, Steamboat returning, pinning the world champion. It was great. And Flair's promos afterwards were just, they really sold the whole angle. I agree. He was, he was tremendous in this one. I like how he started off real calm and then, he told his story about how Steamboat was ready to retire at 28 to raise a family and become a farmer. And then he said Steamboat would get cold sweats at night and could never sleep because he felt unfulfilled because he was never a champion. And that's when he came knocking on Flair's door. Um, and then by the point, by the time it got to the end, he was kind of out of control and uncomposed. And it was, it just really emphasized what he said prior and it just really sold the match. Meltzer said TV sucked leading into Chi-Town Rumble after the Steamboat debut. I disagree with that. I felt like this feud was built perfectly. Uh, you got the quick win, and then Flair lost all composure for the next four or five weeks, and uh, I thought it was very good uh, because of Flair, not necessarily Steamboat. And we end this episode with Al Perez over Agent Steel. Seems like they fought two or three times throughout these, these shows. I don't know if you noticed, the match only goes about two and a half minutes, but half of the half of the match is random cuts to women literally standing and posing in the crowd. Like literally they found fans to stand up, get them out of their chairs and pose for, for the video shots during the match. Yeah, I did see that. And they had to be sure to be wearing that Chi town rumble shirt. Perverts, man. It just felt like perverts. Cause like, could every you imagine, camera cut was still a could young you girl. imagine in this era of 2020, uh, someone going around and, and determining who they thought was good looking enough to get a cameo on their television program. I mean, they'd eat the wrestling promotion alive if they, if they tried to do that today. Oh yeah. And like the, the commentators were selling it. Oh man, there's a lot of good looking women here tonight. Or uh, there's a bunch of cute girls in the building. And they, like every time they showed one, the, the commentators had to acknowledge it. It was just a little, it was weird and creepy. And I think, Even I think it goes, I think it goes back to old school booking again. Uh, you bring in the women fans, that brings in the, the male fans. And I think that's maybe what they were going for here. 
Allie, yeah, uh, a very creepy way. Yeah. <laughs> Perez, Perez lands an alley copter and then for absolutely no reason lets Agent Steel up and gives him a just gives him a right handed punch to the face and pins him. I don't know what that was about. Yeah, I put down here what the hell for? <laughs> like why did you yeah. punch him? You, you did your finisher. Why are you picking him up to punch him? You know, there's a lot of reports know. that Perez used to go into business for himself and this just felt like that there. I didn't understand that at all. Yeah, I don't, we, I don't know. We got NWA Pro up next, also January 28th, hosted by Jim Ross and Bob Cottle. Love that combination. A lot of the matches were super quick, so I'll try to just skim over them real quick. We got Michael Hayes in the opener over Eddie Sweat with a DDT in just a minute. Thank God. And that's Michael Hayes out of the way for the show. We follow that up with a promo of Ric Flair. Uh, I, the only takeaway I got from this promo, you know, again, Flair sells it great with Steamboat pinning him. Uh, he says, uh, Ricky Steamboat, you did something miraculous. You pinned, you know, the world heavyweight champion. So, again, just another good Flair promo setting up their match for Chi-Town Rumble. Abdullah comes out, goes over Randy Hogan. Poor Randy Hogan. He gets chops to the throat, the big elbow. Abdullah even whacks him with the cane. Crowd's hot for the match, though, if you want to call it a match. Abdullah drops the elbow, though, gets the win in two minutes over poor Randy Hogan. Another I have good... no idea why the crowd was hot. <laughs> I think it was just a hot crowd. I don't. I didn't mean they were hot for Abdullah. I mean, make that, oh, okay. that, that very makes clear. Sense. I apologize. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Couple of promos here. Varsity Club promo. More of the same from them. Not taking anything away from the promo, but it, it was what it was. Then we get an Eddie Gilbert promo. He talks about Kendall Wyndham turning on, turning heel, joining the. J.J. Dillon stable, the horseman, whatever you want to call him at this point. Kendall actually used uh, Tully's slingshot suplex. I thought that was uh, interesting that they kind of gave him Tully's finisher move at this point. Yeah. I did like the promo by Eddie Gilbert, though. Yeah, um, and that's why that's why I wanted, wanted to uh, make a few notes about that one. That one really stuck out to me. It was a little different. He had a little bit something extra to talk about. Yeah, for sure. And I, I like that he said, like, I never realized I was that important in the NWA until that moment when he was getting turned on. He felt like he was established enough to be used as somebody to get turned on. And he, and he kind of hinted that uh, he, he's like, you know, you got your side, the horsemen have theirs, and that they're all after him and he needs help. So he's like, I got a sting and I got a steamboat on my side. But one question I did have for you is, what, yeah. what did you think of Magnum as uh, an interviewer? I thought it was a, a nice job of NWA to give him some work um, after his accident. But I thought he was pretty good. Magnum was basically thrown into this spot to replace Tony Schiavone on the fly. So when he replaced him on World Championship Wrestling and in these spots, I thought it's hard for me to describe uh, my feelings on this. I thought everything Magnum did was perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with any of it, but it just lacked enthusiasm or it lacked personality. Everything he said was spot on. He knew what to say during commentary. He knows what to say. It all makes sense. He doesn't seem lost for words. I mean, everything he does is, uh, it, it's, there's nothing wrong with anything he does. I just feel like, I don't know, I just, not enough oomph to his delivery, maybe. But yeah, I mean, I, there's nothing wrong with Magnum cutting, uh, hosting these promos here. Yeah, I thought he did. I, I agree with you. Like, he could have used a little bit more personality, but yeah, he was, he's kind of like the microtunda of interviewing or commentary where he's just so by the book and so thorough and he knows what to say and when to say it. And, uh, that there wasn't a lot of room for personality with him and it never showed, but yeah, I thought it was, I thought he was decent, pretty good overall. Uh, we see Butch Reed in there over Bob Emery, the flying clothesline, 
In about a minute and a half, another promo with Butch Reed and J.J. Dillon. The same question keeps getting asked week after week. Butch Reed, why are you here? <laughs> Dillon keeps explaining why he's here, because he's a great talent. I don't know what else he can possibly say. I, I don't know what else they're looking for, but the same promo on every show so far. Like you said, I believe they, they pretty much dropped this when Dylan leaves here, so not much more to talk about with that. Uh, Kevin Sullivan and Mike Rotunda in tag team action over Trent Knight and Mark Collins. Uh, double underhook suplex and a double stomp on Collins gets the win in two and a half minutes. We see Kendall Wyndham out for singles action with J.J. Dillon in his corner over Agent Steele. He gets uh, the win in about a minute and a half with a blanked up slingshot suplex. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll mind my words here. I'm reading my notes, but I'll, I'll mind my words. A absolutely yeah. awful version of the slingshot suplex. And at this point, Kendall Wyndham should never do the slingshot suplex ever again in the history of his life. I agree 100%. Like, he, he got his, like, waistline on the ropes and mm-hmm. it totally stopped all momentum that all agent still would have had to come back and he basically had to deadlift him off the ropes to finish the suplex it was like a put him on the ropes stop and then finish the suplex it was absolutely brutal was um yeah. she didn't stick with the left arm lariat as his finisher and uh, i feel i feel so bad for him knows how to the guys, that one the guy's been in the business for however long. His dad's Blackjack Mulligan. His brother's Barry Wyndham. He's finally going to get a push, and then J.J. Dillon up and leaves right after this. Yeah, I feel bad for him, too, because, I mean, you had two of the greatest of all time, and you're kind of floundering for the most of your career. And then he finally gets his break, only for it to get cut out from under him. But... Follow up with another Magnum TA interview. This time he's interviewing Jim Cornette about the Loser Leaves match once again, and I got that queued up right here. It's signed, it's sealed, it's soon to be delivered. Jim Cornette, you and your perspective team, Paulie Dangerous and his perspective team are going to meet, and somebody is going to be leaving town. This is the biggest risk that I've ever taken since I've been in professional wrestling. Just like you said, six-man tag. Condry, Rose, and Dangerously against beautiful Bobby Sweet Stan and myself. And the loser of the fall leaves the NWA. Now, traditionally, what happens when you mix managers and wrestlers in a wrestling match? The manager gets beat. Always happens. I've been on the receiving end of it a million times. I've been in that situation. I've never won a wrestling match. But this time, we got a manager on each side, each team. And Polly, realistically... That means it's going to come down to me and you, brother. One of us has got to go. And I'll tell you this right now. You think you're the cocky young punk. Think you're the young hotshot that's going to come and knock me off the mountain, brother. If I haven't got what it takes in me to get rid of a jerk like you, then I'd rather be washing dishes at Denny's. But I tell you what, I ain't ready to leave the NWA just yet. I ain't ready to let somebody like you come in here and get something over on me. And in three months, I'll dirty trick me, something I've been doing for four long years. So you say, you just got here. You ain't going nowhere. I say I've been here for four years. I've invested that time of my life, and I ain't going to let a little piece of garbage like you come in here and ruin the whole thing. So you get your boys, Polly, and you get in that ring, because a match is going to happen. And I guarantee you, you think you got all the dirty tricks up your sleeve. I have forgot more about being an SOB than you will ever know in your entire life, brother. And I'm going to show you that when it happens. Well, I'm going to take you for a ride, and it's going to be a nice, long one. And once again, another classic Jim Cornette promo. The guy, I, I give it to him, the guy knew how to sell a, uh, a feud back in the day. Yeah, absolutely. If, if it wasn't for Cornette and Paulie, these guys would be relevant. I'm not taking any anything away from their wrestling ability out of the four of them, but 
the whole reason people care about this field or even want to see this match is Cornette and Dangerously. And uh, that's just how good these guys are. Tremendous, tremendous, tremendous. And it's it's another sad reflection on the business today where they don't where people think that guys like these like Cornette and Dangerously can't help uh, as far as cutting promos and helping guys get over. Put all the heat on your talent. You can definitely make it work. But managers are just useless this, these days, it seems like. Yeah, and that's obviously the logic of one Vince McMahon. Though we've seen him try lately. But um, I don't want to talk anything about modern day <laughs> wrestling right now. So we'll try to move away from that and uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll move on with this episode. Uh, we have Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert over Jerry Price with a hot shot in a minute and a half. Go back to Magnum TA again. This time he's interviewing Ricky Steamboat. Uh, you have any notes on this one? Uh, I like Steamboat's just so bland and boring on his promos, um, but they're believable. And I, I think uh, and it matches his personality and the man that he is, so it worked to me, but they're just so bland. And if you didn't understand Steamboat or get it, then you're not going to enjoy his work. I like how he just says he's not lucky. He, it takes a lot of skill to beat the world champ, and he, he has it, and he's not lucky. It wasn't luck that he beat him. Good thing he was as good as he was in the ring, or because <laughs> his promos wasn't going to sell anything. Yeah, and that's exactly you know my thought as well as as in regards to how talented Steamboat was as a wrestler in the ring. It it really got people to look away from the fact that he was never a great promo, but this particular era, uh, particular era of his promos, uh, really didn't do him, uh, didn't help him any. Between the little little dragon Ricky Steamboat Jr. and Bonnie Steamboat and the family man gimmick, and say no to drugs, and all these other things that, you know, I don't want to be the man. I just, you know, I'm just a man. It's these things. I get where he's coming from. I get the character. It's not going to get over with a wrestling crowd, though. The fans, to, they, the, the booze seem to pile on more and more each week with, the, with that promo that he seems to cut every week. And again, he was never a good promo to begin with. So when you take someone who who's not very good to begin with, and then they're inserting sentences that you disagree with or don't want to hear it makes it twice as bad yeah i agree he just felt too cookie cutter you know too uh middle class or you know too you know on his high horse a little bit uh it, it didn't feel forced it just felt like that's just who he is and i, I guess you can't really take that away from him he, he's he's not living a gimmick he's being ricky steamboat and right. uh there's nothing wrong with that but when you got People like you, you can just use any promotion. You got the Hulk Hogan's, the Ultimate Warriors, the Ric Flair's, the Barry Windham's, the Stings of the world coming out, and Lex Luger even coming out and talking about how great they are. And I'm doing this and this and this, and I want to be world champion for this reason or that reason. It just it just looks out of place. And I think that's where some of the dislike from the fans comes from. Is like this guy's too clean cut, too perfect, like. He lives in a perfect house with the perfect wife and the perfect kid, and everything's perfect. It's too perfect for him. And Flair shows that, but he's also shown where he's vulnerable. Whereas Steamboat, in this short return, never hasn't done that just yet. So I, I think that's where the booze come from. And then we go to the main event of this program: U.S. Champion Barry Windham uh, defending against the Junkyard Dog. Dog. Takes off early, gets gets on the offense with some headbutts and a body slam. You know, one thing, the dog loved to throw a body slam, and I always wondered every time he picked the guy up for the body slam, why not just drop him with the thump and end the match? It just it, that never made sense to me. But he misses. <laughs> yeah, no, an, no. But basically, the entire match is the dog throws a few headbutts and a body slam. 
misses an elbow drop, and Barry Windham locks on the claw. And I don't know if you picked this up on the commentary or not. I thought this was kind of clever. Bob Cottle wonders out loud about the head of the junkyard dog and if it can you know, sustain the punishment of the claw. And Jim Ross you know, mentions that the temples are actually the focal point of the claw and not, not the cranium. So I just thought that was kind of cool that Jim Ross tried to make it more realistic. Yeah, absolutely. It was great. Uh, I did pick up on that. And that's just Bob Cottle and Jim Ross is one of the most underrated commentary teams of all time. I, they are so good together and can sell a match and talk about things that you're not really thinking about. And they work so well together. Um, just really, really good stuff. Dog breaks the claw with a DDT, which I had never seen him use before again, and, and probably for good reason. It was not very good. He makes a slow motion comeback, starts throwing punches. Jim Ross claims that the dog is named his right hand Bertha in a resting note. Dog accidentally nails the referee. J.J. Dillon runs in, hits him with the shoe. The dog no-sells it, which is kind of funny because on the last episode, uh, the dog took a bump and took a loss after getting nailed with the shoe. But apparently the shoe was a, a different type of loafer, I guess. JYD no-sells it. Uh, <laughs> Kendall Wyndham runs in, attacks the dog for the DQ finish in about six and a half minutes. They uh, actually, The Wyndham brothers actually get a double suplex on the dog. I was uh, very impressed that they got managed to get him up and over like that. Right. Um, the only thing that stuck out with this match was Barry Windham. He he sold like a million bucks for every single headbutt, every single one of them. He would roll around, or he would go out of the ring, or he would sell it. He'd be he would play scared off. Just he was so dang good. I mean, so so natural, so good. He made JYD's two moves look like they were the most deadly moves in all of wrestling. Great job by him. You know, my biggest, I guess, my biggest problem with with someone like JYD at this point. And again, I've mentioned in the last episode, I was a huge fan of JYD and his, and his peak prime, at least his prime in the WWF 85 and whatnot. But uh, my biggest problem here is when you have a man that you're paying X amount of dollars for to come out there and put on a, pro, a show and you know that he has all these faults or is on the decline. And basically the guy he's wrestling has to do all of the work, all of the selling, all the bumping, everything to even make this match look remotely entertaining for five or six minutes. The issue might be with the, the higher ups hiring people like this to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, why are you paying somebody to go out, let their opponent do all the work for them? I mean, if they're doing absolutely nothing outside of name value, then what, what's the point? I don't, I don't get it, but, uh, and I don't blame I'm, the I'm dog. It's just name value only. I don't blame the dog if, I mean, if you're going to pay me to do little or nothing, I'm, I'm going to go out there and do that. And they, you know, WCW did that repeatedly. They brought him back in 1990. They brought him back in, you know, he stayed in it through 91. Watts brought him back for a brief period in 92 before he saw what he got, you know? So this wasn't the last time right. we'd even see the dog with a run in the NWA. And then this uh, episode closes with another promo from the Wyndham's. Uh, once again, Barry Windham assures everyone that Kendall Windham is the newest member of the Horsemen. Yep, and uh, I like the way he ended the promo. He's like to finish it up by saying that the Horsemen have no peers. Uh, I thought that was really good. But yeah, it was just your run-of-the-mill promo and just announcing that Kendall's a Horseman. Decent show. I love these. I like Pro and Worldwide. They're like you said, they're they're faster squashes. The show goes quicker. It's not bogged down by Rest Hold City and things right. like that. So I I enjoy watching them. 
And we move on to 705. I guess it's still 705. I'm not really sure when they made the jump back to 605, to be honest with you. But we're, we're on to the uh, nighttime program, World Championship Wrestling, for January 28th. We kick things off with a Ricky Steamboat promo. He's got the little dragon with him, and his wife, Bonnie, absolutely hated this. I think, I think she destroyed Steamboat's manhood. <laughs> uh, Ricky talks about his quest for the world title. He's such an amazing athlete in the ring, but he's tripping over his words here. Obviously, his weak spot was always the promo. But the, yeah. the family gimmick just made it far worse. And as many times as he had to trot them out onto the program, I don't know if it was Ricky's idea, if his wife pushed for it, which, you know, I've heard stories. It's hard to say. Again, Steamboat's yeah. going on about not wanting to be the man. He, he's just a man. Uh, say no to drugs. It felt forced, not fake. I'm not saying this is not things that Steamboat was thinking himself, but just forced that, to go out there and say these things. If if you know notice like you pointed pointed out before there's there's more and more booing you know to when he makes these comments each each program he's on where he makes these comments yeah the boos are picking up but I'm pretty sure all is forgotten as soon as the bell rings because he's so good in the ring just a couple of interesting things like he said he filed taxes in 44 different states in three different countries right that's things you don't you don't really think about when you're a wrestler how much how you pay taxes and things like that the only thing I really did like. I mean, yeah, you didn't like the family aspect, and I get that, um, especially for the NWA. That's more of a WWF type of angle, but um, he did say he wants to win the world title so he can secure his son's future. Like, that's where the big bucks is, is when you become world champion, and uh, the only way I'm going to be able to secure the future of my kid is if I win that title. And I believe um, that. So you know, I believe in a storyline like that. I'm not against a family storyline. Uh, when you start trotting them out on TV every week, it's uh, who wants to see a little kid? Who wants to see your wife specifically uh, on these programs? Right, just, right. just to stand there. And I'm not against having having them out there one time, but to you know do it repeatedly. I just I, it felt forced. It almost felt like it was uh, you know maybe maybe her idea. <laughs> I think so too. Um, I know she's in the first magazine, like of the uh, NWA wrestling wrap up. There's like a centerfold of her. Oh. Uh, it's like a doctor, and they did like a two or three page spread on her or something like that. So, I mean, uh, definitely probably what you read is probably accurate. She wanted to be out there, but I did like that. Like I said, I just like that one aspect um, because to me, it adds a little personal effect to it, not just wanting to be champion, but there's a Obviously, you want to be champion, but there's an extra motivation behind it, and that's your son. And we all, we both have kids, so um, everything I do is for them. So I, I get that. That, that. It relates to me, but not in the NWA. <laughs> we move on into the show. We have uh, Michael Hayes and the Junkyard Dog over Max MacGyver and Bob Emery in a little over six minutes. Absolutely way too long. Hayes nails the DDT on MacGyver. At this point, on commentary, the Dog and Hayes are being sold as a full-time tag team. There's even mentions of the heel teams. They'll be, you know, wrestling on the house shows coming up. Yeah, they were yeah. they were initially put together for the long haul. Uh, thank goodness that didn't last. Yeah. One thing I did put down here is like at this time I I don't want to keep harping on the WWF, but man, they had Demolition, Brainbusters, the Hart Foundation, Rockers, and the Rougeos. Well, NWA is forced to put people like Michael Hayes and JYZ together. The talent in the tag team division. In the NWA in 1989 is not very good right now. Uh, it's pretty rough, but I'm sure it gets better over time. But right now, you got to put Hayes and JYD together and Hayes and Sting and Hayes with just a different partner every other week. It seems like it, it's pretty brutal. 
certainly the worst shape they've been in a tag team division in a very long time, maybe ever. Yeah, up it next, has to be. Up next, a uh, promo with Butch Reed and J.J. Dillon. More of the same. Uh, we get a Reed squash over Alan Kinsey. This is a classic. Get on the WWE Network and queue up Butch Reed versus Alan Kinsey uh, on the January 28th episode of the World Championship Wrestling. The match starts. They lock up. Reed takes him down with a side headlock. And uh, I think Teddy Long's the referee here. I'm not sure, but um, the referee counts one, two, and three. I don't know if Kinsey didn't hear the referee making the count. I don't know if Kinsey was daydreaming because he was appearing on TBS. I'm not really sure what happened here, but he got beat with a side headlock takeover at the beginning of the match. And it was obvious Butch Reed was not happy because he didn't get his his stuff in. (laughs) Yeah, like, come on. Kept on getting him in like a headlock, Kinsey did, and then he would just throw him off, headlock, throw him off. And then Reed showed him how to do the headlock, and then the match just ends. And then so Reed, after the match, hits it with the clothesline and then the cocky pin. Uh, and JJ comes in and counts the three again. But, yeah, he he was pretty livid. Yeah, Reed commences to pounding on Kinsey after the match, and then, hit, like you said, hits the clothesline. And I thought it was a nice ad-lib. JJ comes in and counts the three while Reed just kind of kneels on Kenzie, and I don't think we see Kenzie a whole lot after this. We got uh, Kendall Wyndham over George South with the Bulldog. Match goes over seven and a half minutes. I have no idea why. This match was brutal. Yeah, um, and it wasn't good. I should, I should point that out as well. Yeah. Kendall Wyndham, uh, not, not accustomed to working as a heel yet. He's given almost eight minutes on TV against George South, and this match felt like it would never end. It did. Uh, when Barry came out during the match briefly and joined commentary, I thought maybe, uh, you know, the match was coming to a close, but no, it just, it just kept going. Yeah, it was pretty rough. Uh, Ross tried to say that Kendall was starting to look like Gordon Gecko from wall street. I don't think Michael Douglas had long hair, but okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, that should be mentioned that, uh, Kendall turned heels. So now he's sporting a slick back hair. Yeah, yeah. And so they talk, he works the arm the entire match. He, he did maybe one or two moves, and then it was just working the arm like 10 different ways this Sunday. By the end of the match, Jim Ross was running out of ways to talk about how smart this wrestling was by Kendall Wyndham. Like he was at a loss of words for like why he was just working the arm so much. Like it, it made no sense. This was an absolute train wreck. My point is, like, why are you going to work a body part when it has nothing to do with how you end the match? So, like, he ends it with a bulldog. So why are you working the arm for six, six and a half minutes when the bulldog has nothing to do with the arm? And, and we've seen that so many times in competitive matches. But here in the squash match, it made even less sense, especially since we had seen Kendall use a hammer lock in a prior match to get a win. It, it, the only thing I can say here is at least he didn't try to use the slingshot suplex again. <laughs> yeah, good for him. <laughs> Uh, next match is Eddie Gilbert over Agent Steel with the hot shot in about three and a half minutes. I, I I thought it was a clever way that Eddie did the hot shot in this specific match. He kind of just backed up and coaxed Steel to charge at him, and it just felt more realistic. Instead of just going into a spot with the finish or throwing him into the ropes and grabbing him and hitting him to finish, uh, Steel was kind of at a vertical base. He was he had his wits about him, and Gilbert just said, come get me, and Steel ran at him, and Gilbert hooked him and nailed the hot shot and got the win there. It was a nice change of yeah, pace, like just going into the finish. Steele, of course, was Brad Anderson in a mask. That was uh, Gene Anderson's son. Never sure why they used to keep him in a mask, because he worked as Agent Steele there for a while, and then later in 90 and 91 as Zan Panzer, 
also under a mask in WCW. I guess uh, it, maybe they had plans to possibly one day do something with him, or maybe it was just out of respect to Gene Anderson and everything he had done yeah. you know, for the business, especially in the uh, Mid-Atlantic region. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I agree with you. I love to finish. He kind of got whipped into the ropes, and he just stops and dares Steele to come at him. Uh, like you said, it's a different way to do the high shot. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, we have uh, Mike Rotunda and Steve Williams teaming up over Trent Knight and Mike Jackson in about six and a half minutes. Uh, Williams pins Knight with the Oklahoma Stampede. During the match, Sullivan announced he, uh, he and Williams would be defending the titles at Clash of the Champions 5. And since they never really liked to go over that card, it was kind of interesting to listen and try to learn some of the card for the Clash of the Champions show. They do more talking about Rotunda regaining the uh, TV title from Rick Steiner. Obviously, the Road Warriors match coming up at Chi-Town Rumble as well with the Varsity Club. Uh, Lex Luger briefly appeared at ringside during this match as well. So it was a lot of things going on, and I, I actually took a, a soundbite from this match. Uh, first, there's a small, quick conversation. Uh, Sullivan makes a comment about Ross being more devious than him, and Tony agrees with Sullivan. And then uh, the next one is, uh, I, I like equally, it's uh, Ross compares the Varsity Club versus the Roadies feud as like two mobs going at it because the fans don't care who win. And Sullivan implies JR knows all about mobs. And then Ross defends himself by, by saying Tony's the Italian. So I'll cue that up. I, I enjoy this. And am I one of the most devious persons you know next to yourself, Jim Ross? I would agree with both those statements. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of times in this sport, fan motivation is a big part of what goes on. There's no fan motivation here. You've got some guys in the ring, and the fans really could care less if all four men end up beating each other into oblivion. It's like two mob families uh, getting in, involved with each other in a very physical nature. That's what we have in the ring right now. Dr. Death Steve Williams and Mike Rotunda. It's like, I'm sure Ross knows all about mob families. Shivani's the Italian. Yeah, I really got a kick out of that <laughs> stuff. They're, they were all just, all three of them were just having fun on commentary during yeah. that match. Great, great stuff. I love it. Uh, the next match, Ricky Steamboat in the ring, uh, wins over Russian Assassin 2 with the crossbody in about six and a half minutes. Ric Flair joins commentary during the match. Your, your thoughts on this one? Steamboat was Steamboat. He was great. Um, a lot of arms. He was working the arm again. I think this whole episode, somebody touched the arm at least once. And then uh, I like when Flair came out, and he, of course, he had a name drop Turner. And then after the match, he kind of just started yelling at Steamboat for ringside, and Steamboat's just walking around and ignoring him. Like, who the heck is this guy bugging me? Uh, I thought that was very, very good. I really liked that part of it uh, as the, a part of the angle. The only thing I wish is that Steamboat's dive landed a little bit better on Flair. He totally missed him, but Flair did a good job of selling the angle by going down when Steamboat touched him. Uh, but I, uh, if he would have connected with that, that would have been really, really awesome. Just a hot angle right here. I enjoyed the whole segment outside of the Russian assassin number two. <laughs> yeah, and like you said, Steamboat does that dive over the top rope on the flare, and he basically misses him uh, most, of, most of the way, but it still made for a great visual. Obviously, it would have been better if he'd really connected with that dive, but it was, it was still, there was a lot of heat there. And then uh, Barry Windham comes running out, attacks Steamboat from behind. Eddie Gilbert rushes out to make the save. We got a, a four-way. Uh, Gilbert gets thrown to the ring post by Wyndham. That's when they take him out. You know, they got him on the floor. They put Eddie Gilbert face down on the floor. Wyndham holds Gilbert in place. And uh, awesome visual. Again, Ric Flair drops a knee drop to the back of Gilbert's head and, and essentially uh, breaks Gilbert's nose against the uh, the floor of the studio. 
it looked brutal. Like it looked like you legit hurt him. Um, oh, it was great. It was so good, so clean. Everything was perfect about this. Um, and I, the one thing about the dive too, like you mentioned, if he did hit it, but I think it's just, I've never seen Steamboat do the dive like that. So I'm sure that it, they thought about it, but that was more of a way, more of something else that Ric Flair has to worry about with Steamboat. He has even more moves in his repertoire from the last time he wrestled him. So um, I think it's one of those little things that caught Flair off guard and just pisses him off even more. Flair loved this breaking the, the nose angle or rubbing your face in the in the, the concrete floor angle because he did it in Mid-Atlantic. Him and Valentine did it to, to Roddy Piper in the early 80s. He did something similar with Ricky Morton just a couple of years before this. That's when they had the Flair and Morton feud. Uh, Morton wore the nose guard after he got his nose broken. And Steamboat actually redid this angle later with Rick Rude in, uh, what was it, 1991 with, uh, in WCW. Or 92, sorry. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a great angle. I mean, it, it's believable, it works, and it's simple. I mean, it's, it's effective. I like it. I felt like this was a great way to give Eddie a program with Barry Windham. I mean, obviously, Ric Flair's with Steamboat, so you can't really intertwine them into a program right now. So this would have at least been a good way to keep Eddie in a program with Wyndham, but we actually learned that it's Lex Luger that's going to be challenging Wyndham for the U.S. title at Chi-Town Rumble. So Eddie Gilbert kind of gets put in as an afterthought here after doing a tremendous uh, storyline with the Horsemen. Yeah, it's, it stinks because I think that's the start of the downfall. Because how can you really go back to Eddie Gilbert being in this position if you can't even give him a title match at a pay-per-view against the guy that he's been feuding with since the beginning of the year? So. As soon as they announced that, I, I think that's where the turn fell uh, for Eddie Gilbert. Just um, kind of cut his legs out from under him a little bit. And we've got uh, Dick Murdoch over Mike Justice with an elbow drop in five minutes. Throwaway match, but it's always enjoyable to see Dick uh, Murdoch. I mean, uh, match was used as a backdrop really just, just to sell the prior angle while Dick's working over Mike J- Justice. Really, the announcers are just selling the angle that just happened with Eddie Gilbert and, and uh, Ric Flair. Lex Luger in action next over Jerry Price. Gets the torture rack in about four and a half minutes. Oh, yeah, I mean, he did a leapfrog, a flying body press in the same match. Um, the only thing I have is, like, on this show, <laughs> as soon as they do a move or two, they just go right back into the arm bar. Um, I know they got to – I'm assuming it's just to kill time, and it's an easy move to do. Um, but then he finally started working the back, you know, backbreaker power slam, suplex, and then he got him in the torture rack. I love Lex Luger's theme music, and later on, Paul Lee's going to agree with me because that's really the only thing he likes about Lex Luger. So uh, I thought that was funny. Uh, I actually used to have his theme music as a ringtone. So uh, it's one of my favorite music, uh, entrance musics from the 80s was Luger's. I thought it was really good. Uh, we got the Midnight Express, Jim Cornette's Midnight Express, I should say, over Rick Allen and Keith Steinborn. Eaton pins Allen after the Vegematic. During the match, Cornette joins commentary. Comments on the Loser Leaves Town, six man coming up. Just more of the same. Uh, good stuff. Nothing wrong here. Yeah, I liked it as well. Now, they also put a little side angle there, a little side story that um, Paulie comes out to scout the Midnights, and then they use the uh, phone to make it look like he's talking to somebody. And then I think they said that if Cornette and Midnights or Paulie and the Midnights touch each other or do anything or uh, destroy the studio again, that they're all going to be fired from the NWA and the match won't happen. So, like, uh, Paulie's kind of teasing him and taunting him to come over and fight him to get him out of town before the match actually happens. Then we have NWA TV champion Rick Steiner over Eddie Sweat with a belly-to-belly suplex in just under four minutes. 
we learned during this match that supposedly Rick Steiner was going to wrestle Commando Ray Candy at Clash of the Champions. I'm glad that didn't happen, but I'll get into more to that when we get closer to that show. Ross plugs Rick Steiner into the Cleveland Clash, you know, the Browns, the Dog Pound. He's, he sell, every time Rick Steiner comes out on these shows, he's selling the Cleveland Browns Dog Pound. He's trying to get the fans in that area to uh, bark when Rick Steiner gets, you know, gets to the Clash of the Champions. So Jim Ross is working hard to, you know, get guys over and kind of feed things into the fans' minds without them realizing it. Yeah, that's one of those little things that Ross is very good at, uh, especially here. I got some comments about Ross later on. For now, he's he's okay with me. But, uh, yeah, he did a great job. He did mention that every time Rick Steiner came out, um, talking about the dog pound and tying it into the clash. So good work by Ross. I, uh, so what what are you thinking of Rick Steiner right now? Uh, he did so many different things in this match that was – like you had Teddy Long pin the guy. Uh, Jim Ross said that's a long second victory. Alex started talking to him, and then in his promo at the end, he tells Tony tells him that all the fans are behind Rick, so he turns around to see if they were there. I thought it was all very well done. I, I thought it fit Rick Steiner perfect, and I was loving it. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, and he has a promo on a later episode, too, where um, he said he's he's a great TV champion. He's been watching a lot of TV, so he's, he's yeah. really brushing up on his uh, TV championship. So, yeah, I thought he really excelled in this character which is, it's odd that he never revisited this character uh, once, you know, he got with Scott and they became the, the badass team that they became. But yeah, it worked. It worked until they they stopped doing it anyway, which, you know, that's why we have Steiner Watch coming up. But so far, Steiner stays yeah. over. He's still, you know, working the gimmick. He cuts the promo after the match. He calls Mike Rotunda Mike Retardo. I remember Bret Hart used to do that when the Hart Foundation would work the U.S. Express on, on some of the uh, event centers from the the WWF in 86. But, uh, yeah, and he called uh, Sullivan a toad. Right. And he said Rick says his dog can be Commando Ray. It was just such a weird, all-over-the-place promo. Right. But it fit perfect for the gimmick, and I loved it. So good job, Rick Steiner. NWA Tag Team Champions, the Road Warriors, over Randy Hogan and Bill Holiday in about two and a half minutes. Road Warrior Hawk pins Holiday following the Doomsday device. It was cool to see that on uh, in the studio. Oh, yeah. They damn near hit the lights. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually surprised they used it. They never really used the actual Doomsday device finisher off the shoulders very often back then, so it was very cool to see it here. And then, you know, the Road Warriors followed their matchup also with a promo discussing the six-man tag team championship. Uh, They're going to be defending them at Clash of the Champions. Yeah, the promo, the one thing I got on this promo was the Road Warrior Hawks talking about, like, all these brutal injuries, like, torn cartilage and broken bones and all this stuff and then he follows that up with saying this is what dreams are made of and then the face that jim ross makes after <laughs> jim he ross, says this is what dreams are made of is like yeah. priceless it's priceless yeah. jim ross made some great facials for some things back then i he, he was he was so good it's so many things mm-hmm. and Mac- ellering was top notch as well uh, he's way better talker than gary hart Oh, and, absolutely. Uh, every time Eller, every time Ellering talks, I just listen and pay attention because he's going to say something that sounds smart as heck, and it's going to make a lot of sense, and it's going to be awesome. So, and I'm glad um, Ellering found his niche as the manager. When he when he was a wrestler, some of his promos were not very good. They were um, B movie versions of maybe superstar Billy Graham, and they weren't very good at all. And so uh, I like Ellering here with the Road Warriors. He's uh, he's done some good work on the mic here lately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we go on with uh, 
Ivan Koloff, I didn't even realize he was still in the company at this point. Random appearance here over Gene Miller with a Boston Crab in 352. Uh, terrible match. It was boring. Yeah, and, and Miller was, was uh, awful. Uh, terrible bumps. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he was terrible. Uh, I think he's in a tag match later on, and he looks terrified to get in the ring. I think it's against the Road Warriors, but, man, he looks scared to death. And I had never seen Gene Miller. I didn't recall until, you know, these, these episodes of TV, so... Whenever I see a jobber that I don't recognize their name and I don't, or I don't recognize them, the first thing I do is pay attention because it could easily lead to some funny bumps or some shoot beat downs because they're not holding up their end of the match. So at one point in the match, Ivan Koloff tries to give him some uh, offense and he does this hilarious, awful looking eye rake and a, just a ridiculous looking punch. So yeah, that's what I got out of that match. It just seemed really odd. Ivan Koloff randomly appeared here. He was pretty much out the door after Dusty was gone. Yeah, it was a nothing match. And then we closed the show with another interview from Ricky Steamboat. He's, it's in regards to the injury Eddie Gilbert sustained earlier on. He knows that Gilbert suffered a broken nose and a probable concussion. So he's very careful not to say concussion here, even in 1989. But that's pretty much how we end the show. We learned Eddie Gilbert's fate is in regards to his injury and, you know, a little more Ricky Steamboat. And that, that takes us to the end of January of 1989. Lots of changing parts, moving parts and everything. But uh, yeah, for the most part, it was a solid first month of January. Yeah, that was my takeover. Just a huge changeover in talent, changeover in booking, changeover in pretty much everything. It was almost like a, a new promotion other than you know some of your main guys, some of your top guys like Flair, Wyndham. Yeah, so it was, it was a, a big change in the company, January of 1989. And with the, the month of January has ended, and after one month of Jim Hurd so far, so good, I'd say. He hasn't been there long enough yep. to mess it up yet. <laughs> so <laughs> Give it time. And with that, with the end of the month, comes the very popular debut. And I've already called it popular, and it's just making its debut. That's how much I love it. It's time for the <laughs> VIP Jobber of the Month. VIP Jobber of the Month. And I want to be clear, this is not an award given out in a negative way. In order to keep these stars over, it takes guys like the enhancement talent to make the superstars look good. It's an art in and of itself, I'd say, and not everyone can pull it off. They are indeed very important people to the business. And through the hallowed halls of the Memory Grenades VIP area, we welcome our very first VIP Jobber of the Month, for the month of January 1989, we have unanimously decided that Trent Knight gets the nod as our very first VIP Jobber of the Month. Congratulations, Trent Knight. Welcome, Mr. Knight, to the VIP Jobber of the Month Club. You can pick up your trophy on our Twitter page at Rasslin Grenade. Your thoughts on Trent Knight winning the award? I thought he, yeah, he was all over the place. A lot of matches, he sold well. Uh, he was able to get some offense in. I think the the main talent respected him and allowed him to show some offense. Um, just he was a solid hand, like you said. Like these guys are needed. If it wasn't for them, I mean, how how scary would the Road Warriors be if they didn't have jobbers every week to come out and destroy? So, uh, way to go, Trent Knight. Welcome to the club, buddy. And not only does Trent Knight get a uh award this week we also uh debut a brand new top 10 and with the end of the month also comes the nwa top 10 
And boy, Steve, I tell you, it was hard assembling a top 10 after we've seen all the action here in the month of January. But by God, we sat down, put our heads together, and I think the listeners will be very happy with the names that we came up with. Hello, wrestling fans. This is not Tony Schiavone. And now here's a look at this month's NWA Top 10 for the month of January 1989, as composed by promoters of the Wrestling Memory Grenade Board of Directors. And at number 10, he's everyone's favorite jobber, Trent Knight. Number nine, we haven't quite heard enough yet, it's Jim Hurd. And at number eight, just because we have to pay him, it's the JYD, Junkyard Dog. This month's number seven is stuck in another era. He's finding ways to kill the company. It's Booker George Scott. And from obscurity to a member of the top ten, just because we want his brother Barry to re-sign, it's Kendall Wyndham in at number six. And at number five and number four, it's Missy Hyatt and everything she brings. And at number three, he's Steven Eckstein's favorite wrestler. Let's give it up for Purely Sexy, Michael Hayes. Moving on to number two, they're so bad they share one number. It's everyone's favorite masked foreign team, the dreaded Russian assassins. And it ended number one with a bullet. A woman who castrated a dragon, ladies and gentlemen, is Bonnie Steamboat. And that's a look at the January 89 NWA Top 10. All right, and welcome back from the top 10. Steve, I think we did a great job putting those 10 individuals together. Absolutely, man. I dare anybody to come up with a better top 10 than that one. And so we move on now. I move on past January. We're in February now. And George Scott starts showing signs of um, some changes in the booking. Uh, the first thing he does is he puts the brakes on Kendall Wyndham and Butch Reed being referred to as horsemen. There, there was rumors that Butch Reed would be the fourth horseman. Obviously, Barry had already named Kendall Wyndham a third horseman. Uh, at this point, George Scott wanted to pull back, uh, pull back the reins on that. He was going to allow J.J. Dillon to continue managing both men, but uh, not as members of the horsemen, but as a separate entity. Yeah, it seems like those guys got the, you know, got the big break, going to join the horsemen, and then Dusty gets fired, and it all goes down the toilet a little bit. It's unfortunate for them because I think it would have been interesting to see how that would have worked with Butch Reed and Kendall Wyndham and the horsemen. It wasn't meant to be. At this point, we also learn that uh, Abdullah won't be working the six-man tags with the Road Warriors against the Varsity Club because the plan was for Abby to turn on the roadies in these matches and eventually do matches against the Road Warriors. Apparently, and not shockingly, Hawk and Animal were against this, and Abdullah was kind of removed from these matches. I think uh, a few different people replaced him in these matches, uh, uh, including Rick Steiner, which made sense because it was against the Varsity Club. I'm assuming that they just didn't want to work with Abby for what? And that would be my guess for a variety of reasons. I would imagine. I mean, I wouldn't want to work with him, so I can't. I can't seem to blame him. <laughs> I don't blame him either. Protecting uh, the gimmick, I guess. Dave Meltzer reports on February 3rd that Vince McMahon wanted to uh, offer a, a peace offering, uh, no more rating of talent with the NWA or, or running against one another. Not because Vince was worried about having competition, but honestly, he just uh, simply didn't want contracts to go get run up on him, uh, have to pay his talent more money. So it was all about just not wanting to pay anybody any more than he was already paying them. It wasn't really like he feared Ted Turner or the NWA. Yeah. And there was, Meltzer did mention like how, if you continue to do these uh, contract negotiations amongst the companies, they're going to go, the price, price tag is going to go through the roof. And once you do those deals, you can't really come back down and, you're just going to make it to where you're going to be paying an extreme amount of money for talent that may not be getting it back for you. And in true Vince McMahon fashion, on February 30, he offers a peace offering, no more rating talent. And three days later, on February 6th, Tony Schiavone gives his two weeks notice 
to leave for the World Wrestling Federation. Tony was unhappy. He was removed from the TBS program, the night, the 605 program, and uh, put put on worldwide, specifically just on one syndicated show. Yeah, it was a mistake by the NWA. Uh, I thought Tony and Ross was really good together, um, but I know they had a little bit of some issues. I think Ross played a little bit in Tony getting moved around or something like that. Tony, I, I really liked Tony in the WWF in 89. I thought he had a different element, and it was really good. I, so NWA's loss was WWF's gain, for sure. I couldn't agree more there. Um, yeah, NWA was just absolutely I, – I, I don't even know. There's I'm at a loss for words that they allowed someone like Tony Schiavone to go, somebody who had been the voice of the uh, flagship program for the last several years. I understand they wanted Jim Ross to step up and take that spot. Uh, but just to, to demote Tony to a syndicated program, I just felt like uh, maybe George Scott had something against Shivani. Yeah, I don't understand it. He was he was the voice of the company, like you said. Uh, he carried David Crockett for how many years? So right. yeah, it's, it's unfortunate turn of events for Tony, but I think it worked out for him. And there was talk of a variety of names possibly coming in to replace Tony, uh, anything from Lee Marshall in the AWA to Jack Reynolds, who hadn't been on an, a part of a wrestling promotion since he did primetime in the WWF. And, of course, Jack Reynolds before that did uh, the IWA for Eddie Einhorn and, and uh, the Cleveland Territory, the NWF Territory back in the early 70s. Uh, Charlie Platt uh, from down in Alabama was also, his name was also thrown around. There was suppo- supposedly no interest in Gordon Soley. Uh, but anyways, thank God, you know, uh, I guess the front runner was Jack Reynolds at one point, but he screwed up so bad at Clash of the Champions that Lance Russell winds up getting the job, which was just awesome. Oh, yeah. Lance Russell was great. One of the great voices of wrestling. Tony, yeah, it sucks losing Tony, but man, they made a, a good pickup in Lance Russell for sure. And as we move to the month of February, uh, weekend shows begin February 4th of 89. The NWA has unleashed a new slogan. This is the NWA. We wrestle. Dave Meltzer seemed to hate it. I honestly liked it. I thought it kind of emphasized that the WWF is going in a different direction and they're trying to focus on the wrestling. Your thoughts? I like it. Uh, Like you said, it's the complete opposite of the WWF. So um, I liked it. I always did. And we go into the show. We start with the NWA Championship Wrestling Show. And I should mention right out of the gate that David Crockett is no more. That's right. There's no David Crockett host instead, or Jim Ross and Jim Cornette, which they worked really well together. We couldn't find the entire program, but we did find a good piece of the program, a good chunk of the program. Our version kicks off with a Luger and Sting promo. Luger cuts a promo on Barry Windham for the Chi-Town Rumble pay-per-view. He's going to take the U.S. title so he can get another crack at Flair's world title. Sting has a few words to say about Butch Reed. There's still nothing really going on there. Uh, Six-man tag team action, all three Varsity Club members, Sullivan, Rotunda, Dr. Death over George South and the Terminators. Rotunda with a double underhook suplex on one of the Terminators ends the match in about five minutes. My question here is, if anybody out there might can help, who were these masked Terminators? I'm I'm very curious. Were they uh, Dale Vesey and Bob Brown? I don't think so. They were working as the Hunters around this time. They were a lot uh, smaller. Were they Riggs and Wolf, who did wrestle as the Terminators in various areas? Again. Their body type didn't really match these body types here. I'm wondering, are they Al Green and Mark Laurinaitis, Animal's uh, brother? Because they were also a team in this time period uh, down in Florida, I believe. Of course, Mark Laurinaitis even wrestled in in singles as the the Terminator as well. So I'm just curious if anybody out there can confirm their identities of these two Masked Terminators specifically. 
going on. We got a promo with Steamboat, more of the same. He's got a, a workout uh, coming up tonight on the 605 program. Steamboat's going to have a workout with three wrestlers. We'll get into that and when we get to the 605. Uh, Lex Luger and Sting have a tag team match over VIP Jobber of the Month, Trent Knight and Gary Royal. Lex Luger with a big press and Sting with a stinger splash and scorpion on VIP, Jobber of the Month, Trent Knight, in three minutes and the uh, match was over. Uh, uh, any thoughts on the show overall? Uh, it was quick. Like we said, we didn't have the whole thing. Uh, my favorite part was the Barry Windham promo where he said Luger was thin as a rail and only was like 200 pounds and was only like six foot tall, just making Luger seem less than what he is. So uh, other than that, it was a nothing show. And we'll go right on into Worldwide, which we do have the full show of. And David Crockett, shame on you. You fooled us. He still had one in the can from a Worldwide taping. Uh, Tony Schiavone and David Crockett host. Uh, both guys are actually, well, Tony's out the door in a couple days. And David Crockett here, I believe this is the last, his final uh, show on television. Uh, matches see Eddie Gilbert over Max MacGyver with a hot shot in two minutes. Abdullah the Butcher over Keith Steinborn in a couple minutes with the big elbow. I thought it was funnier. Abdullah brought out what looked like some form of a championship belt. Come to find out he has brass knuckles glued to it. He's beating poor Steinborn with that. We go into uh, an interview with Polly Dangerously on Jim Cornette and their upcoming match. And I, I got that all queued up. Another great interview from Polly Dangerously right here. Polly Dangerously, you got your way. Your Midnight Express, Cornette's Midnight Express. Cornette in the ring, you in the ring. Six-man tag, and the loser leaves the MWA. But did you ever think about the possibility that you might end up in there with Stan Lane or Beautiful Bobby? You know, a lot of people have said to me, they said, Paulie Dangerously, you're a little crazy for getting involved in a six-man tag team match because, Paulie Dangerously, you're no athlete. But see, the thing is, I know for a fact that Beautiful Bobby and Sweet Stan, they hate my guts, but not nearly as much as Jim Cornette hates my guts. So yeah, I'm taking the risk of my lifetime, but you see, so is Jim Cornette. And that makes it worth my while, Jim Cornette. But you see, man, I'm obsessed with your demise. And in this six-man tag team match, one of us is gonna have to go. Cause I know that Loverboy Dennis and Ravishing Randy, they can handle themselves. I also know, let's give a little credit, so can Bobby and Sam, but you and me, my man, we're in big trouble. Because if either one of us, now of course, Dennis and Randy, they could go. Or Bobby and Stan, they could go. But you see, every time a manager's in a six-man tag, it's always the manager that gets hurt. It's always the manager that gets beat. And since you and I are in it, my man, it's not just going to be the lethal weapon and the messenger of mayhem. It's going to be Paulie Dangerously, the surgeon of sadism. You understand what I mean? The surgeon of sadism. You got it? I'm a psycho yuppie, Cornette, and I'm going to bury you. I'm taking you out. You don't belong in the same organization as a class act like Paulie Dangerously. The last time we met, Cornette, I beat you within an inch of your life. This time, I'm going the whole inch. The man sounds confident to me. We'll be right back after this. Another great promo by Paulie there. And I love how during this war between Cornette and Polly on the mic that they don't insult the fans intelligence. They actually know what the fans are thinking. So they kind of dive into that and they keep saying it's clearly going to be one of the managers who lose. That's how this always works. They're almost exposing the business without exposing the business. They're, they're telling you that, you know, this is how the finish always works. Every time this happens, of course they throw the fans off because that's not technically what happens. And I don't want to spoil anything for, you know, our future episodes or anything with that. But uh, what'd you think of that promo? 
Oh, it was just phenomenal. Um, was this the first time you brought out the Psycho Yuppie name, or is this something you've used before? I can't say for certain if you, you know, there's so much poly out there, even in the AWA and all the tapings he did prior to this. First time I've noticed it, though. So, yeah, to, yeah. To, for me, it's the first time I, I've ever, I've made note of it. Um, Same here. So I was like, it was just really, really good. I mean, these guys are selling the hell out of this match. I don't really care about the Midnights. I just want to see those two get at it. Yeah. Uh, just, I don't know that you could do a better job. Just amazing to have these two again going up against each other. We move on in the show. Butch Reed still with J.J. Dillon. Dillon hasn't disappeared quite yet off of TV over Randy Hogan with the flying clothesline. J.R. has pointed out in previous shows that Reed likes to call that move the bomb. It's funny hearing Ross say that, but any butchery gets the win here in 90 seconds over Randy Hogan. Uh, they follow that up with an interview, JJ Dillon and Butch Reed. They finally come up with something else to talk to Butch Reed and JJ Dillon about. And it's actually sting, which makes sense because they're fighting at Chi town rumble. Basically Reed says that he's seeking revenge for everything sting did to JJ in 1988. I don't know what that is off the top of my head other than, Hey, he did take flair to a hell of a match on clash of the champions. The first clash of the champions. Other than that, I'm not exactly sure what he's looking for in revenge, but at least they gave Reed something to say that actually incorporates Sting and in, in why they're having a match. This is the first time after three, two or three weeks where they actually gave him a, a purpose. One thing I thought of when I was listening to this promo in particular was uh, it'd been cool if JJ stuck around and they had Butch Reed like do all the dirty work for the horseman, but he was not getting anything out of it on his own. So he finally starts seeing the writing on the wall and then maybe turns face a little bit towards, you know, Halloween Havoc time and went after Ric Flair and tried to get the belt. Basically saying, I did all the work for you all year round, all year long. Now it's my turn to get what I deserve. I want, I want a title shot. It kind of could play off of that. I thought it had just been a different angle at the time, but it would have been pretty cool to see that. Yeah. And you know, the, the only, I, I love the, the idea of that entire storyline like it would work for me i would have loved to seen that happen i think the only thing the only the big issue here is is just the change of the guard and booking booking the booking committee bookers throughout the course of the year everything just got changed so much because of that yeah yeah, i love the idea of it excellent booking idea i would have loved to have seen that storyline play out it would have been perfect for flair flair would have done amazing with that story and i could just picture the matches too read just using his muscle and flair flopping all over the place. It would have been just tremendous. I and we think. saw, we saw some Reed and flair later with in the doom situation. And that, that was good too. So yeah, that's, I agree. I, I agree. It was, uh, it would have been great, but we move on. Barry Wyndham and Kendall Wyndham team up over Mike Jackson and Mark Collins. Barry hits a superplex on Collins and that's not enough. He tags in Kendall. Let's Kendall finish him off with the bulldog. I guess, uh, Kendall's already re- uh, retired the slingshot suplex match goes about a minute. Interview follows with the Wyndhams. Thank God. The promos clearly taped before the episode of World Championship Wrestling where Ricky Steamboat debuts, and I'm going to tell you why right now. Wyndham actually references Steamboat debuted under a mask, and, and he didn't show himself until after pinning Ric Flair. Clearly, plans changed between the worldwide taping, which was recorded before Steamboat's debut was taped, and what actually happened at those, that World Championship Wrestling taping. And this is referenced a few times over the course of a couple of weeks here of the uh, syndicated programs, which were recorded before Steamboat came back. I guess the original idea George Scott had was Steamboat would come out as Eddie Gilbert's mystery partner under a mask, pin Ric Flair, and after pinning him, he would remove the mask to show himself as Ricky Steamboat. Obviously, plans changed. We got to the World Championship Wrestling taping, 
and there's no mask. Steamo comes out maskless and gets the win. So some of these interviews over the course of this week and next week on the syndicated programs don't necessarily make any sense. Even Steamboat himself, I believe, and I think we'll get to that eventually, Steamboat himself on, on one of the shows call it, refers to himself as the masked Mr. X or, or what something along those lines. Yeah, it's tough to when you book so when you tape so far in advance to keep things in order, keep things in order, especially when people are coming and going as quickly as they were in, uh, in '89 at this point. Well, you have two options here. One, don't air the promos or reshoot them. The other option is stick to your guns and keep the angle the way you originally had it, since you already have interviews in the can that explain it that way. So I think they had a couple outs here, and they chose neither, and they. Pulled the old they went the lazy class, route. classic NWA. So they went the lazy route. Al Perez over George South with the alley copter in two minutes. Al Perez, I don't know if this is his last uh, match or not. He's on on his way out. Shytown Rumble commercial. We got Rotunda and Sullivan over Jerry Price and Bob Holiday with a double stomp and the double underhook suplex in two and a half minutes. Funny enough, two and a half minute match, longest match thus far on the entire show. Those are the kind of squashes I like, man. And tell, me if, the point. And, and tell me, I caught this. This is like a two-second video clip in the middle of the match. They cut to the fans. How 80s is this? There's a kid in the crowd with a Coca-Cola paper cup with the bottom cut out of it, and he's holding up, yelling through it like a megaphone. Tell me that's not something a parent would have done in the 1980s to pacify their kids so they wouldn't have to spend five bucks at the concessions. Oh, yeah, that's definitely something my parents would have done for <laughs> sure. <laughs> Another interview, Magnum TA interviews Eddie Gilbert. I thought this was good. Eddie actually had some things he wanted to talk about. So I recorded this for Soundbite as well. So we're going to play that right now. Eddie, you and myself know it's tough enough in this business, keeping your head on a swivel, looking at all the competition, trying to keep an eye on your enemies. But when you don't know who your enemies are, then it becomes twice as dangerous. Magnum, I came back to the NWA hoping to start a new, start a new career. So everybody talked about hot stuff, Eddie Gilbert. Say if Magnum TA was talking about hot stuff, Eddie Gilbert, they could say, well, he has a lot of determination. He has a lot of heart. Well, I want to tell you people right now, and if the four horsemen listen, I want you to listen up and listen good, buddies. I heard J.J. Dillon out here talking earlier. I heard Barry Windham. I saw Kendall Windham. And now if you're looking at the screen right now, you can see what Kendall did to become a four horseman. You can see Barry and Kendall now grabbing me to drop me on my head to try to get rid of me. Well, Barry, I heard you earlier say, what do we have to do? Put you out of professional wrestling? That's exactly what you got to do, boy. You better put me in a grave. You better get some dirt and you better put it on me. You better pack it down good and hard. Because, you know, Magnum, a lot of little kids throughout this country, if you really think about it, probably once said, I'd love to be a four horseman when I grow up. You know, they probably look at that lifestyle and they say, oh, they spend a lot of money. They have the prettiest women. And they did. But you know what, Kendall Wyndham? I want to tell you something. I've known you a long time. And you used to be a good friend of mine. But Kendall Wyndham, you're no four horsemen. You've made your four horsemen now a joke. It's nothing anymore. Because I want to tell you something, JJ. If I have to, and I'll start right now, I'll put my own group together. I've got the greatest man, the living legend of the NWA, 
Yay! The man, the only man that could give Ric Flair the biggest run for his money, that could be a sore spot in Ric Flair's side, and that's Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And then I look again, and I got Sting, the man I've been to hell and back with, and he'll stick with me through anything. So, Horseman, if you want to call yourselves that, you better gear up, and you better gear up, whether it's Ric Flair, whether it's Barry Windham, Kendall Windham, and that 250-pound outhouse, Butch Reed and J.J., you're the last person on the list. And Magnum, oh, I can't wait to get a hold of him. This guy's fired up and with good reason. We'll be right back. Oh, man, Magnum stole my word. We were When we were coming back, I was going to say, man, Eddie Gilbert sounds so fired up there. And, you know, before I get to Eddie Gilbert, <laughs> Magnum's done a really good job with these interviews on this episode here. But going back to Eddie, I loved, I, I had to laugh when he basically said, Kendall Wyndham made the horseman a joke. It was, it was wow, did he bury <laughs> in the window there it was a hell of a promo by hot stuff i agree and that was the thing that stuck out to me he basically just totally trashed kendall windham without even getting in the ring with him he just it kind of just made the nwa should have realized right then like okay kendall windham was a mistake no knock on windham but he just didn't fit what the, the horsemen were he just totally destroyed kendall windham there in one sentence and lost all credibility for kendall to me anyway yeah I mean, he he buried him, buried him, underground. Yeah. I don't know if, <laughs> but uh, six we feet go under. On. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And we got a six man tag. I guess it would be technically our main event. I think there's a little more on the show though. Uh, the super duper odd trio of Junkyard Dog, Michael Hayes, and Ivan Koloff. And where the hell has he been? Uh, I think this is Koloff's actually his last appearance on TV, if I'm not mistaken. They take on the Russian assassins and Paul Jones, so Koloff finally gets an opportunity for some form of revenge. So what happens? The Russians get the heat on Ivan Koloff. Koloff gets the hot tag to the junkyard dog. One of the Russian assassins get accidentally knocked into his own corner, and he accidentally tags in Paul Jones. Jones refuses to come in, so Michael Hayes, not Ivan Koloff, brings Jones into the ring the hard way. And the Junkyard Dog, also not Ivan Koloff, drops an elbow on Paul Jones for the win in five minutes. Uh, I think it's obvious that Ivan Koloff's on its way out. He was the one that had the issues with the Russians, the issues with Paul Jones after he had turned babyface on Paul Jones. And here he was the afterthought. He took the heat and Hayes and JYD get involved in the finish. And that's the end of the match. Uh, after the match, the Russians jumped the dog. I have no idea where Hayes or Koloff were during this beatdown, but the Russians beat down on the dog for a little bit after the match, and that's really all I got with the, for that one. Yeah, it was garbage. Uh, makes no sense that if even if Koloff's on his way out, he should get the pin to finish up the feud, but I guess JYD and Hayes are going to be sticking around a little longer, so it makes more sense, I guess, but terrible. And I feel bad for the Russians because sometimes I see like they're trying hard. They're, they're really trying their very best, but they're stuck with a crap gimmick against guys who are less than stellar wrestlers to begin with, so... If they had any chance to have a good match, they were never done any favors by the opponents they were given. That's really, there's not much else you can say about this whole fiasco. I hope we move away from all this Russian assassins, JYD, Michael Hayes stuff here soon on TV, because they're beating it to death, and it's it was dead coming out of the gate. I agree. Let's move Mag- along. Let's move along. <laughs> Magnum TA with another interview, this time with world champion Ric Flair. More of the same, another good flair promo in regards to Ricky Steamboat. Uh, Steve Casey, singles match with a win over VIP Jobber of the Month, Trent Knight. 
I thought it was interesting. Casey kind of threw a super kick early before Trent Knight ran into it, but at least he had the uh, ability to keep his foot in the air. So Knight still ran into the foot, just in a delayed amount of time. And Casey wins this one with a Russian leg sweep. Brad Armstrong, he is not. Casey over Trent Knight in uh, a minute and a half. Yeah, definitely not Brad Armstrong. And then a promo with the Varsity Club ends the show. Kevin Sullivan talks about vipers eating at his breast. Rotunda talks about Steiner talking to his hand. And then uh, at the end of the promo, Sullivan has something funny to say to Tony Schiavone. And I got that interview queued up right here. What? So what about Rick Steiner? What about the Oval World TV champion? First of all, Steiner stole the title in Starcade, and that was obvious because I've reviewed the tape several times. It was a good match. It was a tremendous match, gentlemen. You got to admit that. You got to admit that Steiner's a moron too, don't you? Just look at the guy. He talks to his hand. How many How many team. Michigan graduates do you know that talk to their hand? I don't know that many Michigan graduates, to be honest with you. Well, I don't think you know one in Steiner either, because he never graduated from college, and the TV title's coming home real soon. Go talk to your own hands, Shivani. All right, for David Crockett, I'm Tony Shivani. See you next week, ringside, for the NWA on NWA Worldwide Wrestling. Sullivan gets another classic uh, line in, go talk to your own hands, Shivani. I love it. I love Sullivan. Oh, man. And that concludes Worldwide. We move on to the 6.05, 7.05. I'm still a little confused about what time we're coming on here. Uh, February 4th edition of World Championship Wrestling. It's a stacked show. Lots of matches and promos on this one. I should note that Tony Schiavone is gone. Magnum TA becomes his replacement as co-host with Jim Ross. And I mentioned to you before, before you had a chance to watch this episode to keep an eye out for two future star alerts this week, two future uh, WWF, WWE stars. So uh, we'll get into that as we go through the program. Show open with an interview from Eddie Gilbert. His nose is taped. He's selling the broken nose here regarding the injury Ric Flair and Barry Windham gave to him on the, on the studio floor. He, was, he says he's targeting both men. He wants revenge on both of them. I don't know that he ever gets that revenge, but that's the way the show starts off. We move into a tag team match with Kevin Sullivan and Dr. Death Steve Williams over George South and Bob Emery in about six minutes. Emery submitted to an arm bar by Sullivan. We learned that the Varsity Club would face the Road Warriors the following Saturday morning. It was also announced that Sullivan Williams would defend their tag titles against the Fantastics at Clash of the Champions. And if you're not paying attention to the commentary on these shows, you have no idea what the Clash of the Champions card is at this point. Yeah, they're totally hiding how terrible this show is going to end up being due to the fact that they got a pay-per-view, what, six days later? I think it's five days later, yeah. I get it, but man, you got to do something to promote this show outside of a bumper. Yeah. Jim Ross with a quick interview with Ricky Steamboat. Steamboat's going to be having that public workout later in the ring. Fantastics get a tag team match here. Haven't seen a lot of the Fantastics lately. It's almost like they're uh, being dialed down, kept off TV. But the Fantastics with a win here over Trent Knight and Eddie Sweat in just over five minutes. Tommy Rogers pins Sweat following uh, the Quebecers' Le Cannonball, that somersault sent on from the top. You know, there was talk at some point during this run with the Fantastics that the Rock and Roll Express were coming back in. And I'm not even sure. They may have even come in for a brief bit. But the idea was to turn the Fantastics heel and have them go against the Rock and Rolls because the fans were accepting the Rock and Rolls' return and not paying attention to the Fantastics. There was actually an after magazine that came out that's out there on on the Internet, uh, the cover, uh, where the Fantastics are on there, and it kind of mentions that they're not happy with the Rock and Roll Express. So 
they the the after mags kind of got a hint of what was what was coming although it never came it wasn't happening at this point but it's just something i just thought of right here and i wanted to make a mention of that that would have been i, I would have really been. i would have really loved that yeah that would have been great um and it could definitely added a boost to the tag team division because man they're, they're struggling and now J.J. Dillon is gone. The four horsemen are done, at least for this, uh, at least for 1989. Uh, Jim Ross conducts an interview with Ric Flair and Barry Windham. They welcome out Hiro Matsuda. It's announced that he's bought their contracts. From, they don't mention J.J. by name, I don't believe, but he's bought their contracts, and he's their new manager. And uh, Hiro Matsuda is part of a larger corporation called the Yamazaki Corporation. <laughs> yeah, um... I have no idea what they're thinking with this at all. You know, I, I know it's in my notes somewhere, but I'm going to say it right now. It'll come to fruition as we continue to go through these shows. You could have taken a cardboard cutout of Hiro Matsuda and stuck it at ringside or stuck it in these promos, and you wouldn't have known the difference. The guy had no mannerisms. No, He barely ever got an opportunity to speak. And then when he did, well, you'll hear about that later in the show. But it was <laughs> just, I, I don't, I don't know where they were going with this. I know it was big business. Japan was buying everything out and, and everything was, you know, huge with the Japan corporations in the 1980s and Nakatomi Tower there and Die Hard and all these things. So I, I, I felt like that's what they were going for. I, I don't really know if that's what they were going for, but I don't know, man. Kinda, I just I just don't know. Kinda. The Yamazaki Corporation, or as Barry Windham called it here, the, the Yamakaze Corporation. Yeah, he totally butchers it like in the next show. But yeah, I think they was just going for, you know, Japan and they, it's a sign of money, uh, that type of deal. Cause Flair ends the promo by saying this is going to be the richest experience in wrestling of all time. So, um, I think that's what they was going for. But man, my, Sonny Ono was better than Matsuda as far as being a manager. Right. And I'm not taking anything away from Matsuda, not just a professional wrestler, but the amateur grappler as well. I mean, the guy had all kinds of accolades. And and all the training he did in in Florida and the Snake Pit throughout the seventies and eighties. I mean, and just the big, some a couple of the big names, uh, Hulk Hogan and Lex Luger here, Ron Simmons, and it's and dozens and dozens of others came through there and trained with Hiro Matsuda in Florida. I'm not taking anything away yeah. from him as a as a wrestler or as an athlete, but uh, here as a oh, manager, no. he's he's uh, persona non grata as far as I'm concerned. There's no need for him. They they were better off I just agree. out there by themselves. To call him a prop would, would be accurate, I would say, right here, because he was nothing more than a prop. Pretty much. Uh, next match, Abdullah the Butcher with Gary Hart over David Heath. And you know David Heath as who, Steve? It's Gangrel. All right, the future Gangrel vampire warrior. Abdullah mauls Gangrel here. Big elbow drop, finishes it in four minutes. Another lazy match by Abdullah. Did those nerve holds under the jawline again for the entire match. I, I, Dave, I, he phone like his phone was coming out like his saliva. He was selling <laughs> it like a million bucks, but man, Abby's trash. The sooner he's gone, the better. I think Abby just, he, I think you know, from all the stories and all the times he's played games with people in regards to money and some of the things he did, uh, the the hepatitis storyline, not storyline, I mean real life news, but. I just think Abby's a scumbag in general. I'm sorry if I upset anybody out there that's a friend of Abby or or that's a big fan of Abdullah the Butcher. I just, I can't, I don't see the appeal. I don't either. We move on. So Steiner watched yeah. 89 continues. Rick Steiner in the ring here pins Pretty Boy Lloyd with a belly-to-belly -belly suplex in just under four minutes. 
I thought at some point they made a mistake and referred to Pretty Boy Lloyd as Mike Thor, but I thought it was pretty obvious that the guy had PBL pasted right on the back of his tights. So, Yeah, I agree. And the one thing I have on this one is, what do you think of Ross, like mentioned in the collegiate careers, every single week, every time they have a match? Um, I mean, he beats it into the ground, there's no doubt. And I mean, and, and of course, we spent the next 20, 30 years listening to him do that, so... Yeah, I mean, it, I get it. I guess he's doing it because it could be the first time somebody's tuning in and you don't know this, but it seems like every Rick Steiner match or every Rotunda match or every Dr. Death match, it's just like, it's like all collegiate wrestling talk. And I know like when he goes to WWF in 93, he tries to crap and Heenan just craps all over it. Talk about the match and things like that. But man, it, it's cool at first, but then when you have to listen to it every week, it gets old real quick. No, and I, I agree. And I think the point here, the, the only difference I can come to for Ross right here is that's their gimmick. That's the Varsity Club's gimmick. So it works a little better here than it does in, than pointing out that Ron Simmons went to Florida State every week for like 13 years in a row, you know. Or Pillman was uh, on the, the Suicide Squad. Squad for the Cincinnati Bengals. Right. So it was, oh, it's annoying. And won the Ed Block Courage Award. I can't tell you. I didn't even know what an Ed Block Courage Award was until Jim Ross, and, and he beat that into the ground, too, with Brian Pillman. But, yeah, so that's oh. what it is. Steiner Watch 89 lives on. Steiner's still over with the fans, still doing a good job here. Ross is still selling that. Rick Steiner's coming to Cleveland, Clash of the Champions, Cleveland Browns, Dog Pound. He wants those fans barking on that show. We're going to we'll do that watch along on episode three. We'll see if that, we'll see if that comes to fruition as well. Uh, Chi-Town Rumble promo follows. Another interview, Jim Ross conducts an interview with the Varsity Club regarding Mike Rotunda's match with Rick, Rick Steiner and, of course, Sullivan Williams' match with the Road Warriors at Chi-Town Rumble. Another perfectly fine promo, just just same old generic stuff right here. U.S. champion Barry Windham teams with Kendall Windham again. Now they're managed by hero Matsuda. They get a win over Mike Justice and Robbie Weiss in about three minutes. Kendall pins Weiss with a bulldog, following the superplex from Barry again. Seems like Barry's finishing the guy off, and he's throwing his brother a little bone by coming in and hitting a bulldog after the superplex just to pick up the win. Yeah, I put on my notes how nice of Barry allows brother to get all the pins in these matches. <laughs> yeah, he's doing so, his best. Uh, he's doing his best as the big brother to get his little brother over. I, I give Barry kudos for that, even if his heart's in I the right too. place. In any way, I have no issue yeah. with them teaming, but not full time. And it seems like that's what they're going for here. Just two different levels of caliber. They don't ma- mix well. You can liken Barry wow. Windham to Bret Hart, but Kendall Windham is no Owen Hart. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely not. He's nowhere close to an Owen Hart. He's more like a Keith Hart or something. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and, and I was fine with it here, but it would have hurt Barry in the long run had they continued this on and on with Barry and Kill teaming. I'm sure Barry enjoyed it being with his brother and everything like that, but I don't know. Just uh, didn't work for me on a full-time basis. Me either. Jim Cornette's Midnight Express over the Terminators. Again, the Masked Terminators in the ring. Less than a minute. Lane scores the win following the double flapjack. Cornette on commentary. I'm telling you, for a match that went less than a minute, Cornette got a lot on commentary in under a minute. That guy can talk. <laughs> during the match, during, <laughs> during the match, Paulie dangerously comes out with his Midnight Express experience ringside. They bring out a big sign that reads February 20, bye-bye Jim Cornette. Obviously, they continue to get you to believe that they're gunning for the manager, running one of these managers out of the promotion. So good job there by everyone involved. What's the deal with the Terminators? Like they, These guys are huge for an enhancement team. And that's why, for their size, I'm wondering, and I caught, I think it was on this episode, I caught one of them up close, 
in the camera and it looked like the they had uh, had the bleach blonde goatee going on and that's what mm-hmm. made me think that they were in and be- between that and their body size maybe believe they were a little more than just a couple of job guys they found somewhere that's why i'm wondering if it's if it's Laurinaitis and Al Green from down in Florida at this point. Of course, they would go on to become the, the Wrecking Crew as well in WCW in 92-93 time period. as Rage and Fury, the Wrecking Crew. So I'm wondering if it's them oh. two. I'm hoping somebody out there can confirm it. I did a little bit of research on it, but I didn't really deep dive, so I'm hoping somebody can help us out out there. Magnum TA with an interview with one of your top favorites right here, and I'm not even being sarcastic like I am with Michael Hayes. This is definitely one of your favorites in this era. The total package Lex Luger regarding his U.S. title shot with uh, Barry Windham at Chi-Town Rumble again. Again, Luger just reiterates that he's coming for the U.S. title so that he can become the number one contender for Ric Flair's world title. I guess he's thinking that's a loophole uh, out of uh, not being able to challenge Flair again. It's almost like Luger gets put in these situations over and over. He does it with Flair here, and he does it with Yokozuna in the WWF. Yeah, it's. Uh, I like this one, though. Um, yeah, it's, it's, much, really cool. <laughs> it's much better it than is. that. Then that summer slam finish, no doubt. Oh yeah, and I, I just I think it's like okay, you know what? I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to become the number one contender by beating your guy Barry Windham and become the U.S. champ. I'll be my own champion. And I like how he said he's becoming a student of wrestling. I've been watching film over and over and over, and I, he's like I'm going to be more prepared for this match than ever. I thought it was a really good promo. He did sound a little under the weather, like he had a cold or something. So it wasn't maybe the delivery wasn't as good as it normally would be by him. All in all, what he said was awesome. I thought. Up next, uh, Ricky Steamboat in the ring for a public workout with three lower card wrestlers, Rick Diamond, Bob Cook, which Bob Cook was around forever, a phenomenal uh, enhancement talent. And uh, this was an interesting choice. Dustin Rhodes, who we haven't really seen at all in a couple of weeks at least. Uh, No mention of Dustin when Kendall Wyndham turned heel on Eddie Gilbert or, or any mention of Dustin beyond that. You would assume he left when Dusty left, but here's Dustin working in an enhancement spot, I guess is what you would call it here, uh, with Ricky Steamboat in the ring. Yeah, it's definitely weird. <laughs> also, between the issues between Dusty and Steamboat in the past, so it's just everything's very interesting here. And I don't, I don't think D- uh, Steamboat's ever the type of guy that would take advantage of Dusty's son because of any issues he had with Dusty in the past either. That's not what I'm implying. I'm just implying it's, it's interesting that this is Dustin's last appearance, and he hasn't appeared in a few weeks, so it's interesting that they put him out here for this particularly. Yeah, it didn't make much sense. I didn't. Did you like this? No, and I, this is this is not new. These these are this is goes back to seventies booking. They ran these public workouts uh, with several uh, several different feuds in the past, uh, several different storylines in the past. So this is just an old school booking tactic. It worked once uh, or I, twice. I did. It didn't work here at all. I the only thing I good I can say about it was they. I don't know if it was a steamboat audible or somebody else. You know, planted this into this but the only thing i can say about this is i did like how they tried to use the the enhancement workers or at least dustin tried to use them to where they were trying to use rick flair's moves and steamboat was showing how he was going to avoid those moves he was blocking the 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 patented rick flair knee drop from dustin Rhodes repeatedly i I liked that about it but i liked absolutely nothing else about this segment yeah and he blocked the figure four twice with different ways um I don't think the crowd had any idea what was going on. They showed some fans on the one of the sides of the, the ring, and like he did a move on Dustin, I think, and they got all excited, like get him, finish him, and that sort of thing. I don't think they had any idea what exactly was going on in this segment. Yeah, and uh, Flair joined for commentary during the segment, and he gives Jim Ross crap for comparing the jobbers to him. So 
just because Dustin's knee drop didn't work on Steamboat, who's to say Ric Flair's knee drop won't work on Steamboat? So Flair made a good point, too, I thought, right there. I did, too. It was, it, both guys, for what they were doing, told a story. One of them was talking, and the other one was in the ring telling a story. And it, it, it meshed good in that sense. But for if you had no idea what was going on and you just turn it on and you see these guys doing what they're doing, like you'd be like you'd be lost. And we come back from break and we see footage of Ric Flair slapping Ricky Steamboat in the face and assaulting him in the ring. Steamboat then retaliates with a big gorilla press slam. Flair loved taking those press slams, uh, ripping Flair's shirt off, sending him to the floor. Flair was just tremendous, man. He's just just amazing here. I agree. Uh, both guys were awesome. My only question is why are you running this angle during commercial? Or do they just portray it as it happening during the commercial? And obviously, these are taped, but you know, I don't, I don't have an answer for that one. I, I don't know why this was. I guess just to separate whatever downtime there was between the workout and the flare slap. I don't know. I, I have no answer. Maybe the setting yeah, was kind of a way to cut it up. Yeah, I guess. But I, I guess it also keeps you in tune. Like, don't change the channel on commercials because you're gonna miss something as soon as you get back. Uh, interview follows Jim Ross with the Road Warriors and Paul Ellering. They talk about their match with uh, Kevin Sullivan and Steve Williams coming up. Butch Reed, now with Hiro Matsuda, no more J.J. Dillon. Reed gets a win over Jerry Price with the big top rope clothesline in under three minutes. After the bout, they announced that Reed would face Sting at Chi-Town Rumble again. Jim Ross mentions uh, Pearl Harbor during this match. Did you catch that? And, and I did. How, I, uh... and, and he seemed to come off like he hated Matsuda for being Japanese. And I just felt like it was yeah. forced. I felt like somebody fed this to Ross, or Ross was told, you need to figure out a way to get heat on, on Matsuda, because this just felt like cheap heat. Yeah, this was bad. Like, his quote was, does the date December 7th mean anything to anyone anymore? And it's like... And it just felt stuck? like Ross had nothing else to say, and that's that was his go-to. That's all he could come up with. Yeah, what, it was awkward, and his the way he presented <laughs> it, he did sound like he was mad. Like, he, like right. why are we giving like, Matsuda all this money and stuff? Like like we resent Hiro Matsuda for something that happened nearly fifty years ago, <laughs> you know. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, nothing to do with. Uh, yeah, nothing right. to do with it. Right. Jim Ross with another interview this time with Sting regarding his match with Butch Reed at Chi Town Rumble. Sting uh, tries to talk black, for lack of a better term, tries to talk like one of the homeboys. I guess is what <laughs> the the way oh, he was no, out there. I didn't say he did a very good job at it. I mean, St- Sting on promos and. Oh, any type of promo is not very good, but that, I think that's what he was going for there. A failure as yeah, far I, as, I'm, as I'm concerned. <laughs> the whole yeah, segment. Was, the idea behind it was okay. Like he was trying to get Butch Reed to come out and say bad things about him so he can get, he wants him to get pissed off and come at him. But the way he presented it was terrible. Oh my God. It made no sense to me. It was yeah. garbage. Then we go to NWA tag, World Tag Team Champions Road Warriors over Mike Jackson and Kip Montana. That's under the two boy minutes. Billy Gunn. That's right. Billy Gunn, our second super future superstar alert of the day. Kip Montana went on to become Billy Gunn. I think he was also Kip Winchester in the Long Riders with uh, Brett Colt, who went on to be Bart Gunn. But uh, yeah, Kip Montana here. Rhodey's uh, beat Billy Gunn here with the heart attack type clothesline, I guess you would call it, or whatever, from the Heart Foundation during the match. Yeah, it's, it's kind of fitting. It's kind of funny. I mean, I don't know if this is his first rodeo. Uh, pun intended, I guess, with Kip Montana in wrestling or where he was at prior to this, but you got to start jobbing to the Road Warriors, and then they're the ones that take out the Road Warriors, what, 98? So it's kind of funny how that goes full circle. Yeah, full circle is what I was thinking when you said that. 
They announced during this match that the six-man titles will be on the line at Clash of the Champions against Michael Hayes, The Dog, and Sting. So again, we're learning these Clash of the Champions matches in the middle of commentary, in the middle of these matches. And that's pretty much the way that the entire card is divulged over the course of the next week or two. Dick Murdoch over Mike Thor with a delayed brain buster. I was impressed how long Murdoch was able to keep the big guy Thor up there. Match went less than four minutes. Interview Jim Ross back out again, interviewing Jim Cornette and his Midnight Express about the six-man loser leave town match. Only thing I have to say about this particular interview was Stan Lane was rocking these purple shades. I'd love to get me a, a pair of those. And then I know I know you I like know. this promo because of the Untouchables setup that Cornette oh, did. Yeah. You can talk about that if you want. Uh, oh, it was tremendous. Um, I love the TV show from the 60s with Robert Stack and those guys. And basically, I don't know if, if you've never seen this show, um, they basically, the show will open up with, uh, I can't even think of who it is, Walter, the, the big, uh, news guy from back in the forties and the thirties and forties over the radio. I can't think of his name, but he was on this show and he would like narrate like how the story, the show is going to start and, um, you see what's going on and then he takes you into the, the buildings or whatever the case may be, like Frank Nitty, like Cornette said. And he basically mimicked it exactly, but he turned it into a wrestling promo. And I was like, I was just loving it. I was loving every second of it. The untouchables part. I didn't like the way he finished this. It's kind of, I didn't really care for this one, the end of it, because it, it kind of went over the line a little bit. I know there's right. a fine between reality and fake, but he's like, says terrible things happen to bad people. Like Cabone died, a broken man, Hitler blew his brains out. And they just fried Ted Bundy two weeks ago. And that Paulie is next. Yeah, Cornette sometimes crossed that fine line and rather than walk it. Oh, uh, yeah. Still, like, he still cool. does. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's Cornette to a T, but I mean, that's a little too far. I get it. You want some heat and everything, but that's that's a little dicey. There's, no matter what Paulie does, he's not in the same caliber of people as Ted Bundy, Capone, or Hitler. I mean, come on. We move on with Mike Rotunda over what uh, they announced him as Mike Allen. I believe it's Rick Allen here with the uh, double underhook, the butterfly suplex at about five and a half minutes. Uh, I can't say it enough. Mike was just awesome in this gimmick. I, If you watch the early Mid-Atlantic stuff, Mike Rotunda was literally the definition of a deer in headlights. And they poor, they threw that poor guy on, on the interview promos every week with Bob Cottle, and he had no idea what he was doing. And, and that's a good way to learn. I'm not knocking that, you know, you got to keep giving the guy an opportunity out there. I didn't care for him in Mid-Atlantic or, or any of those, you know, territories. I was fine with the U.S. Express, but I liked them more because of Barry Windham. But IRS just put me to sleep. <laughs> you know, uh, Michael Wall Street, the original incarnation of Michael Wall Street, right before he jumped to the WWF, I kind of got into that just because it was a different gimmick. But again, I don't know how long I would have it would have sustained my interest. I'm not even going to get into the boat, Captain Mike Rotunda. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I like IRS was good. I liked his right off clothesline, the uh, small and drop suck. But I like his clothesline, and then I like his opening things. Like everybody needs to pay their fair share and stuff like that. But other than that, the bell rang. I like Cornette likes to say the bell rang, and that's when it fell apart for IRS for me. But yeah, this is the best rotunda there is right here. Then we go to six man tag team action, which actually makes sense for once. We have Michael Hayes teaming with the Dog, Junkyard Dog, and Sting. Over Max MacGyver and Cruel Connection. That's Gary Royal and George South under lime green tights and hoods. Match goes less than three minutes. Hayes pins MacGyver with the DDT. And this match actually makes sense because these three are actually going to team up and challenge for the six-man tag team championship here at Clash of the Champions. 
Yeah, this was nothing. The only the best part about it was just being two and a half minutes. Uh, anytime <laughs> Hayes is on the screen, I'm good. <laughs> um, I'll say this much. <laughs> you know, every time Dog's out there, Ross likes to point out that he's just a kick and punch guy. And uh, he has a line here. He just says, uh, talking about the junkyard dog, you talk about basic. He'll basically beat you to death. So I thought at least Ross was trying to get him over. But uh, you want to talk about getting yeah. yourself over. These guys have a promo with Jim Ross after the match to close the show. And Michael Hayes, whew, I don't know. I'll let you guys have a listen. Michael, I want to say this. You guys are going to have a big match. February 15th in Cleveland, you're going to go for the six-man tag team championships of the world. Ten ruin the Road Warriors. What are your thoughts on that? Who, who made six-man tag team what it is today? One answer, the fabulous Freebirds. What Jay Wide, big title on the line. A Japanese and the and the and the Road Warriors. Well you like to sit down in the jungle deep death, that three bad monkeys sitting at the dog's feet. But well, I said time and time again, every dog needs a bunk to chew on. And we got ourselves the phone, baby. Singer, February 15th in Cleveland. A few comments here from you. You know, Ross, I was telling you a little while ago about losing my composure. Well, the Road Warriors made me lose my composure one day when I did a double half gear, half twist, like a Greg Luganis special off the top. But guess what? The Stinger's still standing because you know why? I am the Stinger. Talking about how big Tenero is, I love to slap a jab. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next week on Championship Wrestling. Jesus, man, oh man, <laughs> get thrown wow. off the air today with that one. Oh yeah, yeah, he would. And then all the stuff that's came out about him about being racist and all that. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna point my like fingers that. and. You know, I, and I know there's stories out there, and I'm not going to point my finger at him and, and call him a racist, but geez, oh man. And I guess even back then, though, you weren't ne necessarily looked at as a racist by simply making a comment like that, sad to say. But I don't know, I don't know that it was worse than that, but I thought it was just so ridiculous, too. Jim Ross tells him that they're fighting a Japanese and the Road Warriors. Like, that's how he sold Tenryo. You're fighting a Japanese <laughs> and the Road Warriors. But yeah, that's uh, uh, I just when I heard that I couldn't believe it. And then you brought it, you brought it up a couple days later on your own, and I said, "Don't worry, man, I, I got a soundbite of that one." <laughs> Insane, yeah. Insane. Things stick out, sticks out for sure. The way he just emphasized it too, like, yeah, that's that's what you're gonna remember from that promo. And then I, I should point out as we close the show that this was Magnum's first show replacing Tony Schiavone. I thought he did a fine job. Magnum never stutters over himself. He knows what he wants to say. I think it just goes back to. He has one gear, and if you ever watched the Magnum TA promo from when he was uh, in the ring, if he didn't have a reason to be angry, he was great at doing the angry promo, the I want revenge promo, I'm coming for you promo, but just a, a normal promo. Magnum TA just had that bland personality, and I feel, I, you know, that's, that's the way his commentary comes off to me, but I go back to what I said earlier about his commentary, nothing wrong with it verbally. He's a, he he delivery of lines throughout the match explaining the match, explaining, you know, the psychology. It's just everything he says is just, I don't know. It's just there. It doesn't do much for me. But, I, again, yeah, I, it's it's better than David Crockett. I'll say that much. Yeah, I liked what he had to say. Uh, the delivery could be better, of course, and a little bit more enthusiasm and personality would have been cool. I liked the content that he provided. It's way better than look at him. Look Watch him. this. Look him. Watch yeah. this. Watch this. Well, look, look at him. Yeah. Beat him like a dog. Oh, uh, look at that. 
Yeah, like it's so much better than that. Like it sounds like somebody that is competent and knows what he's talking about. So it was a nice change of pace, especially when you go from Paulie and Cornette hosting these morning shows and things like that, where they're 900 miles per hour and all into it. Then you get a stoic, flat Mike Magnum TA, but you take him serious because you know he does know what he's talking about. And I, right. I enjoyed what he was having to say. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I had to grit my teeth when Tony Schiavone would be making an excellent point during a match commentary and David Crockett would basically tell him to shut up just so he could say, watch this, watch this. Like you needed total silence. Like it was golf in order to watch the next uh, maneuver in the ring. Tony Schiavone would be on a roll with, you know, doing some great commentary and he would basically stifle Schiavone in the mid, in mid sentence. Watch this, watch this, watch. And then, you know, it's like a stomp. You know? So yeah, I just, yeah, oh my God. But that's enough about David Crockett. We say goodbye to David Crockett. So, and then we, we close out the weekend of February 4th with the NWA main event, uh, February 5th, Sunday night. Paulie Dangerously and Shivani, the hosts now. Paulie laughs that he ran David Crockett off. It, it's, it becomes more funny next week, and I'll get to that next week. <laughs> For right now, <laughs> Paulie has run David Crockett off. Tony Shivani replaces him here. We get a, re, uh, a repeat of a match we saw on a, another show. Al Perez over Agent Steel with the alley copter and then that punch to the face. I still don't get that one, but we move on. U.S. champion Barry Windham over Junkyard Dog with a cradle. So what happens is the dog hits Barry with the Russian leg sweep. Barry kicks out, and somehow the dog rolls off of Barry and rolls on top of Teddy Long, the referee. So this this, <laughs> this puts Teddy Long down for a moment. J.J. Uh, Dillon's still yeah. there at this point. This should be noted that this was recorded before J.J. left. Uh, JJ clocks the dog with a shoe and and this time he does sell it, which is funny because it was, I think it was just last week that the dog got hit with a shoe and he no sold it That's this week. This week he gets hit with it and he gets basically KO'd by it almost. The only thing I liked about this one was, it sounds like a broken record at this point, but Barry Windham, like the way he sold the headbutts pretty much the whole match. Cause that's all JYD really did. I liked how JYD got out of the call hole too, by turning it into a DDT. It looked a little funny cause he didn't really, cuffed the head under his armpit but he still was able to get a ddt out of that position and it looked pretty cool to me uh, but other than that it was a nothing match there's just a ton of stalling at the beginning very well, slow and to pick well, up the pace and do something well they probably told the dog he had to go nine and a half minutes and that's what they came up with <laughs> yeah the main event sees world champion <laughs> rick flair over eddie gilbert in 11 minutes by uh grabbing the tights for leverage after jj Dillon had shoved gilbert backwards i think gilbert had the uh reverse rolling cradle the uh, o'connor roll on on flair first and flair uh they were by the ropes and Dillon gave him a push backwards and flair used the momentum to get on top and hook the tights and get the pin what wasn't shown was the pinfall the finish wasn't it didn't actually yeah. air on television they were too busy showing huh. a shot of the crowd yeah it was like some old guy in the second or third row like grinning like your typical what you would think of an nwa fan was this guy <laughs> and that's what you've seen instead of the finish um i'm like what the hell is going on here like come on nwa and i and i i, I started to wonder to myself did they not show the finish because jj dylan was so involved that jj dylan it was jj dylan who aided rick flair in pinning eddie gilbert and now with dylan gone they didn't want to give him the props but i feel like i'm giving the nwa far too much credit there i don't think they would go back and edit something like that they didn't edit any of the promos talking about Mr. X, so why the heck would they edit this just because JJ's no longer there? Like, they don't care. And, and you know, and it does go back. There was entirely far too much cutting away, randomly showing women smiling in the crowd. It was stupid, not a place. 
showing fans is fine. I'm fine with that. Like when it's in between matches or maybe when there's a down spot, a headlock or an arm bar or something like that. But when you have action going on to just the cutaway and just showing fans mugging for the camera, it's just, I don't understand the logic behind that. I don't either. And they did. It seem like every, it started at the very first match within two or three seconds. They go straight to a chick in the front row. It's, um, it's, and they did this throughout the whole show. And it's like, come on guys. Yeah. And it's bad enough. They do it in the middle of spots, but they do it here in the actual finish of the match. Just ridiculous. The pinfall takes place off camera. I thought Paulie did another good promo here to end the show. Uh, cutting promo on Jim Cornette. Dangerously used pretty much the whole show to get him, get his uh, team over, get himself over whenever he had an opportunity. I love that he took advantage of that. And that's pretty much wraps up the uh, weekend of February 4th. Yeah, I like the, the, the back and forth between Tony and Paulie. This whole show was really good. Uh, they had they implemented the phone and all sorts of stuff. And we got a couple Paulie promos on Cornette. So uh, really good show with, for those guys. We got one more week to go. We're going to knock that out right now. And that's going to be for the weekend of February 11th. And we're on NWA Championship Wrestling, Saturday morning show for February 11th, 1989. Hosts are now Jim Ross and Jim Cornette. Kick off the show with a promo from Gary Hart and Abdullah the Butcher. Gary's busy eating a magazine, or so Jim, Jim Ross says. Looks like he's eating some of Jim Ross's notes as well. Gary Hart claims that Abdullah's eating the magazine in order to get information. I thought that was clever anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I did too. Tag match, JYD and Michael Hayes over Robbie Weiss and Richard Diamond. DDT on Weiss, three minutes, nothing match. Ricky Steamboat workout from the World Championship Wrestling episode from the week prior is aired. Then we uh, go to commercial break. There's actually a commercial intact on the uh, episode of Championship Wrestling that I have. And I had to record this uh, just for the nostalgia. So I hope everyone enjoys. Hi, this is Grandpa, and I'll be your host for Super Scary Saturday on the Superstation. Newsflash, newsflash, it's King Kong versus Godzilla in Tokyo. We are very afraid. Godzilla is crazy, and his brain is very small. About this size. King Kong drinks too much and does not bathe well. Their battle could destroy the world. A wonderful stunt. Terrific. King Kong versus Godzilla. So join me, Grandpa, on Super Scary Saturday. 12.05 Eastern, today. Sorry, I just had to throw that in there. I used to love uh, Grandpa when he worked uh, for the TBS studios there and showed some movies on the weekend. So just reminiscing brought back some nostalgia for me. Uh, Moving on with NWA Championship Wrestling Show. Sting over Bob Cook. Butch Reed was on commentary during this match. Sting gets the win with the Scorpion in three minutes. Up next, we have a Lex Luger promo. Luger talks about his upcoming match with Barry Windham. He says not only does he have incentive for getting revenge on Barry Windham turning on him the year prior, but... He gets the reward of winning U.S. championship match and eventually becoming uh, getting another world championship match with Ric Flair. Yeah, I like this because it actually gave reason for why Luger and Barry Windham are having a match. It was kind of just thrown together. It should have been Eddie Gilbert based off of the way the first month of TV went. But uh, Luger tying it in, how he got kicked out of the horseman for Windham and left in a blood, his own blood. Uh, I thought it was a job well done by Luger to tie all that in. Yeah, and my understanding was it was actually going to be, uh, it would have possibly been Barry Windham versus Eddie Gilbert, but when it was time to put out the promos for the pay-per-view, Gilbert hadn't gotten over as he eventually did, and they didn't know he was going to get over as big as he was, so they went with a big name, which was Lex Luger in this instance, so I'm sure everybody enjoyed Luger and Windham. It's a high-profile match anyway, and they uh, here we have a soundbite of the Chi-Town Rumble card. Chi-Town Rumble 89, the professional wrestling event that blows away the Windy City. 
Chi-Town Rumble 89, the ultimate wrestling event of the year, coming live on pay-per-view to your hometown. Chi-Town Rumble 89, it's a star-studded lineup when Nature Boy Ric Flair defends his NWA World Heavyweight title against arch-rival Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And evil forces collide as the Road Warriors with precious Paul Ellering challenge Steve Dr. Death Williams and Games Master Kevin Sullivan for the World Tag Team title. Plus, the U.S. heavyweight title is the prize when former champion Lex Luger rumbles with current champion Barry Windham. And dog-faced gremlin Rick Steiner can't shake Mike Rotunda as he grapples for his world TV title. Chi-Town Rumble 89 is three hours of classic action-packed wrestling broadcast live from Chicago's UIC Pavilion. Witness the final showdown between Jim Cornette and Paul E. Dangerously as the Midnight Express's struggle for survival. Plus, white-hot superstar Sting struts his stuff in a fierce special challenge match. Monday, February 20th, 7 p.m. Central. Chi-Town Rumble 89, top-notch professional wrestling at its body-slamming best. And it was intriguing there that they made sure the factor Sting into that advertisement before, obviously, before they knew who his opponent would be. So obviously they had plans to make sure Sting was on the card, no matter who he was going to be facing. Next match, a six-man tag, a big six-man tag. It's the Road Warriors team with manager Paul Ellering. They get a win over the Varsity Club by disqualification when Road Warrior Hawks thrown over the top rope about seven and a half minutes into the match. They do an angle where... The Varsity Club take Paul Ellering and whip him shoulder first into the ring post, injuring his shoulder, attempting to break his shoulder. You know, Ellering looked really good here physically. Like, he was in much better shape than I thought he was at this point. I thought he'd not let himself go, but kind of trimmed down, thinned out uh, at this point. But, yeah. man, he looked, he looked really good here. And he threw a drop kick. I couldn't believe it. It was amazing. I mean, the guy could still go and probably did more here than stop. he could do. He could probably do more here than he did back when he was a full-time wrestler because he was so jacked up back then and, and getting injured every other month because of it. Yeah, he actually threw a better job kick than Hayes. Um, yeah, but yeah, to say the Ellering least. Didn't look, didn't look out of place. Really, the only thing that looked out of place was his tights compared to like what the Road Warriors normally wear. But other than that, he didn't hurt the match at all. He's better than some of these other guys trotting around like Ivan Koloff and JYD. Uh, the story of this match was the Varsity Club tried to injure Ellering's arm. They tried to injure uh, Animal's arm. Hawk gets upset. He throws the, the podium after the match. I enjoyed this supposed heel versus heel dynamic here. It's good strategy working on the Road Warriors' body parts on Animal. Hawk just destroys a chair after the match. Did you see him just beat the living hell out of a chair? I mean, he, until it broke into pieces. And this is not a gimmick yeah. chair. No, this definitely was not. I think he found it ringside, and he swung it at Sullivan. Damn, damn near killed him. Um, I'm really... If he would have bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm really starting to get into this feud here. The intensity, the realism, the, the way the guys are selling this thing. It's just, I mean, Hawk broke a, broke a freaking chair, just smashed it. I mean, just amazing. Steel chair. Yeah. yeah I enjoyed it. I'm enjoying it as well. Um, the heel versus heel dynamic doesn't even matter. These dudes are going at it every time they get together, and it's it's great television. And they, they vow revenge for El Ellering, and it was just a, a hell of a match for TV and hell of a match for a Saturday morning match. So it was a really good match there. Uh, and then the final match of the show, Rick Steiner over Dave Heath, uh, the future Gangrel, with an inverted power slam. I always loved when Rick would invert moves in the inverted power slam. I liked it when Jim Neidhart used to use Bret Hart and as a projectile and, and give him an inverted power slam onto the, the job guys they would, they would be fighting. And I loved Rick Steiner smashing Heath into the ground like this. Then a top rope power slam was in this match. 
grabbed uh, Heath in a side headlock and gave the old bushwhacker battering ram straight into the top turnbuckle. And then the belly to belly ends it in about three and a half minutes. Yeah, like he's just throwing out new moves every week. It seems like that second row power slam is ridiculous looking. Like the fact that he can even do that with somebody is crazy. The battery ram into the turnbuckle, it just, I think Rick Steiner is having a good time with the gimmick and just coming up with ways to punish people. We move on to Worldwide for February 11th. Tony Schiavone's still there, at least at this taping. No David Crockett, though. Interview with uh, Eddie Gilbert. Eddie's uh, sporting a broken nose now, selling the accident, or the, I'm sorry, the injury from uh, Ric Flair and Barry Windham. It's funny, though, he didn't have it last week, which also aired after the injury. Some things are clearly taped out of order. We've already mentioned the Mr. X storyline, which becomes very prominent here this week in the interviews. Gilbert claims the old hot stuff's back in town. You mess with fire, you get burned. Obviously a play on Eddie Gilbert throwing fire, uh, which he learned from Jerry Lawler. So, yeah, it's uh, cool to see Eddie Gilbert kind of working up an an edge here and and having a reason to get more aggressive. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Just a really good promo. I'm loving everything Eddie Gilbert's done so far uh, in the first month and a couple weeks of February. Just a great talent. Another Lex Luger promo here. Only thing, my only takeaway from this one was the crowd is just hot as hell. I mean, this is an insane crowd. It's I, I miss oh, yeah. crowds like this. I miss crowds like this. It's not piped in either. No, definitely so not. That is that crowd great. is hot, just phenomenal. Uh, Rick Steiner again in another match. TV champion Rick Steiner over Bob Cook. I just love the way he attacks him. He just attacks him with punches and throws him around. Hits the kneeling pile driver, kind of picks him up for the pile driver, and then just drops forward uh, with the kneeling pile driver. <laughs> just destroys Bob Cook belly to belly in five minutes, ends it. Just a really good squash match by Rick Steiner here. Steiner watch just lives on for sure right now. Great stuff. Another interview with Ricky Steamboat. This is where Steamboat cuts a promo discussing his return to the company. Talks about entering the ring against Flair as the masked Mr. X. Again, didn't happen, so it's really confusing when you're watching it on TV. What is he even talking about? They left it out there to air. I just, I don't know. I have nothing else I can say about it. Yeah, the best part is that he says Mr. X pinned Flair, and then they go to the footage, and it's Steamboat pinning Flair. So it's like they didn't give a crap about the production or if anything made sense. They really didn't. Instead of taking two minutes to just record something in the studio and airing it, they just roll with this here, but... We move on. The original Midnight's over the Terminators in five minutes with the rocket launcher. You, of course, Polly's original Midnight's are now using the finishers of Jim Cornette's Midnight Express. And I, I don't see any any of them trying to do the Alabama jam. So we're not getting the Vegematic, but we are getting the rocket launcher here by Randy Rose. Then we get an interview with Rick Steiner. This is where I had mentioned earlier. He said he's the TV champion. He's been watching a lot of TV. A little, <laughs> little spiel here with Alex. Steiner watch, like I said, continues. It lives on. Mike Rotunda follows up. He's going to be fighting Rick Steiner at Chi-Town Rumble. So we get Rotunda here in his own squash match over Gary Royal. Butterfly suplex ends it in about three and a half minutes. Rotunda was just so good here. It was so deliberate, aggressive. It just, it was real. It was a perfect fit for the varsity club. I don't know what happened to him. It was like they took his manhood when they took the varsity club from him, he just, he never had this aggression again in the, in the entire rest of his career. I'm not saying he wasn't realistic. I'm not saying he wasn't out there doing his damnedest as far as participating in the matches, but the aggression was never there again. Yeah. I I think this is the only gimmick that he bought into and was enjoying. I'm not, I'm not saying he didn't like being IRS and running around with Ted, but 
I think this is the only gimmick he ever had that he actually fully believed in and loved it. I think this is this is where it's at for him. And it should be said also during this match, Rotunda over Gary Royal, that Rick Steiner did come out during the match and taunt him, hold up the TV belt and taunt Mike Rotunda. We go to an interview now with uh, Barry Windham, Ric Flair, and Hiro Matsuda. They claim it's the debut of the Yamazaki Corporation. I think this is where Wyndham calls it the Yamakaze Corporation. Of course, Matsuda's already been on TV at this point, but they sell it here like it's the actual debut. He, actually, Hiro Matsuda speaks here, and this explains why he never talks most of the time he's on the TV. And I want everybody to have a listen to this. I can tell you the obvious. We are surrounded right now by greatness. The world champion, Ric Flair, the U.S. heavyweight champion, Barry Wyndham, and somebody else is on the scene here with You know, I'll tell you what, I'd like to take just a moment out of this interview time to introduce the new owner of Ric Flair's contract and my contract, Mr. Hiro Matsuda with the Yamakaze Corporation. He is the new owner of our contract, and we are honored to have you with us, Hiro. I am uh, representing a Japanese corporation named Yamazaki Corporation. I am a very great honor to achieve purchase uh, champion league player contract. And thank you, Mr. Matsuda, for making that so clear for us. We need dueling promos between Matsuda and Jimmy Snuka. <laughs> Could you imagine Matsuda trying to go to war with words with Jim Cornette or Polly Dangerously? Just geez, man. Oh my gosh. He'd have no shot, clearly. <laughs> Next match is Barry Windham out there. He's got Hero Matsuda's corner announced to the J.J. Dillon. Kendall Wyndham also at ringside now in a suit, and, and he's got his hair slicked back, so I guess we're supposed to take him seriously. But Barry Wyndham with a win here over Mike Justice with a superplex in three and a half minutes. Uh, Lex Luger in another squash over Rick Diamond. Uh, this is where I had noted that I love Luger's music. I know you mentioned it earlier, but I had this in my notes here. I did love this music. I, I marked out when I watched Creep Show 2, and there's the I think it's the last segment in Creep Show 2 where the, the teenagers or whatever are or trying to run away from this blob in the water or whatever, and at the end of the at the end of the segment, they cut to the car and you know all the teens are dead. They cut to the car though; they had left the music on, and it's playing this Lex Luger theme. And so I marked out like crazy for that when I want to watch Creep Show too. But Luger over Rick Diamond here, three minutes with the torture rack. We move on to the tag team champions, Road Warriors over Dave Heath and Mike Thor. It's just like here comes death. I mean, <laughs> Heath and Thor stood no chance. Good bumps from Gangrel here. Doomsday on David Heath. Rhodey's win it in a little over a minute. Close the show with uh, Tony Schiavone interviewing the Road Warriors and Paul Ellering. I got a timestamp here for another uh, audio bite. It's the end of the promo. Road Warrior Hawk makes a comment towards the Varsity Club, and I, I think he just he liked the sound of it, so he said it anyway, but I thought it didn't really make sense. It almost kind of put over the Varsity Club, or at least the fate of the Varsity Club. And uh, we'll listen to that right now. Hey, somebody! We snuck on danger! We died on death! And dead men don't make money! Tell that to Elvis Presley! And, uh, yeah, it just didn't make any sense to me. We snack on danger, we dine on death, one of Hawk's famous lines. And dead men don't make money. Okay, that's fine. Tell that to Elvis Presley. So he's saying dead men do make money. So I guess they're going to murder the varsity club, but at least their family's going to make a lot of money out of this, I guess. Makes no sense <laughs> to me. I think Hawk was just having fun. Hawk did that from time to time. I, I can't tell you how many times Hawk said ridiculous things, to, and Tony would make these faces So over the, over the years there. So 
Yeah, but I just thought that was funny, so I left that in. I cut out an audio bite for that. Go to- I've always, I always enjoy Hawk's promos because you have absolutely no idea what he's going to say. And I don't think he and does either. <laughs> he doesn't. I think they've said he doesn't. He has no idea what's going on when he says it. So uh, that's that's always interesting to me. That's a fun time because if he has no idea, we have no idea, and it just keeps you in- invested. And we go to the big show, the World Championship Wrestling Saturday Night Show, February 11th. It's a special one-hour episode, and there's reports from Dave Meltzer that soon the 605 show will be moving to center stage in April. Uh, There's discussion of it, center stage being a temporary home while they get CNN Center a permanent home ready by the summer. That never happens. I'm sure all the Turner Brass made sure those wrestlers never got into that building. (laughs) Can't say I blame them. Kick the show off with an interview, Ric Flair, Hiro Matsuda. Matsuda just stands there with no emotion. He could be a cardboard cutout. I don't understand what the purpose is of him. They continue to play out this Japanese takeover of business in, in the United States. Ric Flair has a line in here about Latoya Jackson, who was in the dirt sheets at that time. He says, if he wants to, he'll walk the streets of Atlanta, Georgia with Latoya Jackson. He'll do it because he's Ric Flair. Of course, Jackson at the time had been exiled from her family. She changed her persona, her character, to a more sexy image, released an album, was getting ready to debut herself in a Playboy spread in March. So Flair picked the perfect name to get some buzz here. Yeah, I didn't really understand why he named it after her, but reading all that and understanding all that uh, makes perfect sense for the time. Uh, we get Lex Luger over Kip Montana, the future Billy Gunn with the torture rack in three and a half minutes. Luger here, this is the most in-shape Luger I've ever seen. I'm not saying he was ever out of shape. But he's just got muscles on top of muscles here. His abs look like a frickin' He-Man toy from the 1980s. Instead of a six-pack, he's got like a 32-pack. It's just, he looks just in peak physical condition. Yeah, absolutely. He looked tremendous. I think, I know we discussed it in the first episode, but they said that he trimmed down for his match with Flair to get more stamina. He removed some of that muscle, and it just made everything else define more define. Uh, just, uh, he's a great guy. And uh, one last note I had about this match was um, Luger does a bear hug in this match, and I hate the bear hug. It's boring. I've never bought it as a, a finisher or even a rest hold. But there was an instance here where Luger applied the bear hug to Billy Gunn, and, I mean, I would have bought it. Had the bell rang, had they called the, for the finish, I would have bought it. That's just how huge Luger looked, and it was just incredible. Just real quick on this, I just wanted to touch on this. Uh, Wyndham was on commentary a little bit here. One of his quotes was, he said, the only thing Luger may outdo him in is in the weight room, and that doesn't count inside the ring. Right. I thought that was really, really good by Wyndham. Uh, yeah. Just two, two great guys going at it right here. It's a nice little feud they got going. Yeah, I think Wyndham really came into his own on, on the uh, promos when he when he went heel. So, yeah, I agree with you. It's a good point there by yeah. Barry Wyndham. Very realistic comment. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Magnum TA interviews Jim Cornette yeah, uh, next with the Midnight Express. Of course, Cornette says he's going to retire Polly at Chi-Town Rumble. And then he goes into this rant about Dangerously used to be a woman but had a sex change and that he picks up his boyfriend at a bus station. I don't know where he was going with all of this. It's outdated, but on top of that, I just I can't even go back mentally 30 years and enjoy this as a joke from 30 years ago. It's it was I don't really it just bombed, I guess, what <laughs> what it did. Um this is one instance where Cornette was yeah. maybe talking too fast too because the fans didn't seem to comprehend most of the joke and there was really no response from the fans whereas normally they would pop for the old gay joke or things of that of that nature but it just seemed like Cornette was i don't know 
I don't know what he was going for here. Yeah, I didn't like it. He came out with like a the daily or something from New York, like the newspaper to kind of get it over. He had like a map, a few other things that he hotel reservations and bus stops and stuff like that. It just didn't rental cars. So he was just throwing it all around and he was going from one thing to one thing and it only, it only took like two or three seconds with each one. So yeah, I, I agree. He was talking way too fast for the fans to even pick up on the slightest of jokes or, or comments that would usually get a pop. So yeah, not give, his best work here. And I give Cornet all the credit in the world. He had all these props, like you said, that he brought out. So he really put a lot of thought into this promo, but it just, it's just like a comedian. It bombed. It just didn't work. The other note I have for this match was, uh, during the promo, he mentions that he's going to send Polly dangerously to hell, but he he can't say the word apparently, and so he tells him he's going to send them to the first letter starts with H, the last letter ends in L, and the two letters in the middle are EL. He couldn't even spell the word in order. I don't know if he he had to do this on purpose or not. It it sounded ridiculous, but if you can't even spell the word, man, I mean that's another level of PG even for 1989 TBS. Yeah, I don't get like so you can say that he goes picks up gay guys at the bus stop, but you can't say hell. Uh, makes no sense. I mean, <laughs> if, if one flies, then the other should fly. I mean, neither one. I mean, hell's not bad, but the other one, yeah, that definitely shouldn't be said. But it was said all free and clear. So, yeah, it made no sense. Next, we have uh, Butch Reed, now managed by Hiro Matsuda, over the January 89 VIP Jobber of the Month, Trent Knight, with a forearm off the top rope. Looked more like a forearm for about five minutes. Ross still calls it the bomb. Jim Ross makes an outdated, uh, a dated sushi joke. He said, he said where he comes from, they call sushi bait. I just marked that down because I don't know. It's just, it's, it's an old joke. Ross compares Sting to Butch Reed when they, when they started, that they both started in their size and their agility and, and everything like that. He, but Ross is basically trying to give everyone something to go on, basically calling them saying that they both started at the, the same level. They were both strong athletes that, that that featured agility as well with it mixed in. And uh, it's evident, you know, here that Hero has replaced J.J. Dillon. Yeah, I mean, Matsuda doesn't belong out there as a manager at all for anybody, but especially Butch Reed. Uh, Ross and Magnum did their best to try to get over how bad uh, of a bad, bad guy Butch Reed is as far as, like, I think he said he got most penalized player in football in college or something ridiculous like that and how he's been a bad guy the whole time he's been in wrestling. But I don't know, like, they're doing their best because they probably think that Butch and Sting can't sell the, sell the match themselves. So kudos to both of those guys. Another Lex Luger promo here. And we're watching so many shows week to week that we're kind of starting to get the same promos over and over, even from Cornette and, and dangerously to a degree. And this is just another one of Luger mentioning that he needs to beat Luger for the U.S. title in order to get another world title shot with Flair. Then there's a tag team match. Michael Hayes and Dick Murdoch team up over Rick Allen and Mike Thor. Match goes over six minutes before Murdoch pins Allen with a delayed brainbuster. JR seemed obsessed in this match with getting over the fact he claims that Reba McIntyre's favorite wrestler was Dick Murdoch. I'm not sure if he was serious, if it was an inside joke. I don't know what was going on there, but he felt the need to say it repeatedly. Yeah, I have no idea what he was going with there. She was at WrestleMania 8, but I don't see Reba McIntyre being a huge NWA or wrestling fan in general. Much less Dick Murdoch, yeah. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> I didn't understand the pairing. I mean, I know it was just TV, but Hayes had just formed a team with JYD. He's also kind of working with Sting, and now here he is with Dick Murdoch as well. Michael Hayes is all over the place. It's like they're throwing partners against the wall and seeing who sticks. Yeah. I know they mentioned bringing in Terry Gordy, so I'm wondering if they was kind of waiting on that. I know Meltzer had mentioned it. 
possibly bringing him in, but he didn't want to give up Japan. So I know Gordy, right? I know Gordy eventually does come in. He comes in because he works. He works the bash. Jim Ross with an interview here with Mike Rotunda, Kevin Sullivan, Steve Williams, all three of the Varsity Club are out there. They discuss their respective matches at Shy Town Rumble. Of course, Rotunda wants the TV championship back from Rick Steiner, and the Varsity or Sullivan and Williams are going to go at the Road Warriors for the World Tag Titles. They uh, had also aired, re-aired the six-man tag that happened earlier on Championship Wrestling between the Roadies and the Varsity Club there. Yeah, the only thing I liked about this was uh, when Steve Williams was talking, You can, if you watch Sullivan, he rolls the, his eyes in the back of his head, and then he kind of just shakes his head to like snap out of it. So he's playing as if he's being possessed by somebody else, and it's just uh, you just got to pay attention and see those things because it's, it's awesome, and it picks up on those little subtle things that Sullivan was good at. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's our final Rick Steiner match of this week. So that means it's time for Steiner Watch 89. Steiner Watch 89! NWA TV champion Rick Steiner pins Pretty Boy Lloyd with the belly-to-belly suplex in just a little over three minutes. Uh, Let's continue to count how many weeks before NWA drops the ball on Rick Steiner. Uh, Steiner keeps his jacket on here. He talks to Alex. Uh, Jim Ross pushing the hell out of trying to get the Cleveland fans to bark still for Steiner when he shows up at the Clash. Let's see if it works. And uh, Yeah, we'll see. That concludes. Uh, Steiner remains over. Uh, I got to give it to him right now. They haven't they haven't quite dropped the ball on him yet. Rick Steiner, definitely somebody uh, that's huge over in the NWA right at this moment. And that concludes Steiner Watch 89 for this week. Steiner Watch 89! And now we move on to another promo featuring Paulie Dangerously and the original Midnight Express. He's Back here on World Championship Wrestling with Paul E. Dangerously and the original, I should stress, Midnight Express. You know, if you think about it, February 20th is just around the corner, and the fact of the matter is, Mr. Cornette, you just have a couple of days left in your career. You got what I'm saying? Because this isn't like a scratch where you put a Band-Aid on. This is like when you lose your teeth. This is like when your hair falls out. This is just like death, my man. It's permanent. It's irrevocable. You're done. You're finished. Did you see Jim Cornette? I took your man right here. I took the name of your tag team. I took your spot. I took your position. I took your gimmick. And so help me, you know what, Jim Cornette. On February 20th, my man, I'm going to take your job. You got me? I'm taking his job because Jim Cornette in a six-man tag team match, you're out of the NWA. And I love that he said, I took your gimmick. I took your job. Took her job, and I, I, I just thought that was a great promo by Paul either, though. Yeah, I did too. It was really, it was very well done. My Cornette's doing all these other gimmicks. Paulie's just getting right to the matter and pushing it hard, uh, the way he knows how, and it makes it a more realistic and more believable, more serious side. I really like the promo. It's probably the best one of the night, to be honest. And then they follow that up with Jim Cornette's Midnight Express coming out for a match, and they tease that the, the two teams can't touch because they'll be fired from the NWA before they even have their. Loser Leaves Town match. Uh, we see Bob Eaton and Stan Lane over the Cruel Connection in about a minute and a half with a double flapjack. Uh, it's just been really fun stuff because you got two masters of the promo mixed and with some good wrestling. I want to know where you can find the Cruel Connection gear because I'm thinking I want to be a Cruel Connection for Halloween this year. Yeah, if you do that, we got to get the pictures on Twitter. Um, but yeah, this is a really good, this is a really good show. Uh, they did a lot of good job getting angles over, and uh, I think they. Uh, and the promos are awesome by everybody. So um, that's what these shows are good at. And it was a 45-minute version, so it's a lot quicker. And because it's quicker, we're already moving on right now to the NWA main event. It's our final show we're reviewing this week. And it's uh, from February 12th, 89. 
Hosts this week are Polly Dangerously and Jim Ross. You see, it started with David Crockett. David Crockett, of course, was released from his contract. Tony Schiavone replaced Crockett for one week. Then Tony left town. And now we have Jim Ross. So three weeks in a row, we have a different co-host with Polly Dangerously, which Heyman actually makes a comment about that. He even starts the show off asking Ross where the Italian fellow is, which is what he would normally refer to Tony Schiavone as. Ross admits, I mean, he op- Ross openly admits he's gone, too. He, he says, where's the Italian fellow? Jim Ross says, he's gone. Within a matter of two weeks, David Crockett's gone, Tony Schiavone's gone, and we're down to Jim Ross and Polly Dangerously, which I'm not complaining about, but it's just amazing to see so many people leaving at one time. Yeah, it's crazy that uh, they got different hosts three straight weeks, not by choice, but this is a nice pairing. I'm glad Crockett's gone. It sucks. Tony's gone. To me, he's always been the voice of WCW, NWA, and for that to be gone for a year is kind of weird. Uh, apparently, there was a Varsity Club Road Warriors match on here. I'm not sure if it was the six-man tag from the Saturday morning show or if there was a different match here, but it's missing off the footage that I, I was able to get a hold of, so I'm not really sure what that was about, but we move on. There's Dick Murdoch with a, mat- a win over Keith Steinborn. Easy, quick match. Didn't, didn't even bother the brain buster with Steinborn. Just dropped an elbow and got the win there. Uh, Jim Ross and Heyman on the show. I don't know if you paid attention or if you really listened to this one because it's so deep into the shows we review. They were really having a, a Bobby Heenan Gorilla Monsoon moment here. I'm not saying they're better than them. If you go to the Observer, Dave Meltzer actually says they were better than them on their first outing, which I thought was the most ludicrous comment of the you know the month. I but, agree. Uh, but they really played off each other in slapstick comedy here so well. Paulie was so good with Ross here, and Ross played back off him so well. And I, I just enjoyed that throughout the show. But yeah, I couldn't believe when I read in the Observer that again, you know, because Meltzer's so hard on the WWF and specifically Gorilla Monsoon that he mentions that Paulie and Jim Ross do a better Gorilla and Bobby than Gorilla and Bobby, and they did it in their first outing. And I just thought that was absolutely ridiculous when I read that. Yeah, that's just blind hate. There's no way. Bobby and Gorilla uh, are two of the best, and their comedy never got old or stale or boring. Um, that's why people watch primetime more than anything. For him to say that, that's just a, being a mark and a fanboy for the NWA more than anything. I thought they did well. Some of the comedy was funny, for the most part, from what we was able to see of it. Right. Like you said, we only have like half the show. But uh, Paul Lee making fun of the typo on the match card, and then... Um, uh, Ross tells Paulie that Hayes is coming out to get him and then dangerously leaves and Ross just says it's a joke. It wasn't like overly funny compared to what Bobby and Gorilla did, but it wasn't right. bad either. No, I thought they did good. I enjoyed them. I always enjoyed them together. I, I liked watching them uh, host World Championship Wrestling and Power Hour back in 1990 and 1991 together as well. So I always enjoyed that duo. I don't know if this was their first time together here for an entire show, but I, I don't know. I thought they did okay. And then we go to the main yeah. event. And I couldn't believe this. Not only did we get a finish, I couldn't believe who won. We see Sting and Michael Hayes get a win over Ric Flair and Barry Windham. Michael Hayes with a win over the U.S. and the World Heavyweight Champion here. Uh, what are they thinking? I get it. But, man, this is uh, – I was shocked as well. I was like, oh, wow, we got a clean a – clean, not necessarily clean, but we got a finish, a definitive winner here. I was shocked. <laughs> yeah, there's a point in a match where Sting misses this weird-looking dropkick, and it's still better than Michael Hayes connecting with one, but Sting misses this weird dropkick, and Flair never even bothered to move, but he didn't sell the dropkick because Sting missed it. I, it was a miscommunication, clearly. Uh, Michael Hayes gets his spots in during the match, which are few, few and far between. Flair finally cuts him off with a low blow like nine minutes into the match. Again, it's a Flair and Wyndham match, so they're 
selling for the babies for as long as they can before they got to take over. A pattern of Flair and Wyndham tag matches, they've been doing it for at least for the last year. Flair goes to the top. That never works. You know, gets pressed off. So Hayes gets the hot tag to Sting. Hayes trips Flair while Sting hits a rolling cradle on Wyndham for the win. I really wasn't expecting a finish, like an actual one, two, three finish here. So that was a pleasant surprise. Same here. I was like, shocking. That's what I put. It was a clean win and it was shocking. And to close the show, we have Polly and Jim Ross still out there having comments. And Polly exclaims that Jim Ross is worse than David Crockett. And this is how Jim Ross responds. Hey, you know, I got rid of the Italian fellow because he tried to upstage me. Mm-hmm. I'll get rid of you. She's like, I got rid of the other one. Oh, you think so? Yeah, you're worse than David Crockett. You oh, know that? That's one of the. That's terrible. Yeah, you're worse than David Crockett. You <laughs> know oh, that's terrible. Yeah, you're worse than David Crockett. You oh, know that's terrible. That's terrible. I just love it. <laughs> I just I can listen to it all day long. Uh, you're worse than David Crockett. Oh, that's it's terrible. So funny. <laughs> yeah, you're worse than David Crockett. You kind of threw him off terrible. guard a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ross wasn't expecting he that. Well. <laughs> no, he I guess he not. wasn't expecting him to name drop David Crockett with him gone, but that, that was great. And that concludes our shows for this week. I mean, I thank everybody for sticking with us well over two hours now. And uh, I just hope you enjoy all the reviewing, all the news, all the dirt sheet news, uh, Steve's all the Steve's insights this week on, on so many different topics from sting going to the, if he'd went to the WWF or Magnum TA as color commentator or Butch Reed had, had he, uh, fantasy book, the baby face turn on the horseman. Uh, there was a lot of great conversation this week and I really appreciate you being here with me, Steve. Oh yeah, man. It's been fun. Uh, th- those are the things that I've seen this stuff before, not all of it, but I've seen a lot of it. And when I watch it, I just think of if things were different, it's always good to play fantasy land a little bit. So, um, but yeah, these are some good shows, some bad ones, but, uh, it was fun. Some final thoughts by me here is, uh, George Scott isn't getting off to a good start with me. If you push the Flair Steamboat feud aside, most of which is on them, you know, there's less Rick Steiner on TV. There's less Eddie Gilbert. Uh, he's being de-emphasized. Scott is taping shows out of order, which is not his fault that they traditionally did that. But then he's not sticking to his original booking plans. So when certain shows are air, they make no sense, i.e. the Steamboat mask gimmick and Gilbert's broken nose. The out-of-touch Hiro Matsuda nonsense with the evil Japanese uh, allowing Tony Schiavone to leave was just asinine. I mean, he was the voice of the Saturday night program. And even if you wanted Ross to get elevated, there was no reason to phase Tony down to just one syndicated program. Phasing him down to me, it just made no sense. I understand not putting on an amazing clash five days before a pay-per-view. I don't know why you book a clash five days before a pay-per-view, but I understand not wanting to give away some major show. But this is the most lackluster card, to say the least, and they still haven't promoted it one time on TV other than a bumper commercial or Jim Ross mentioning matches during matches on the Saturday night program. They haven't even announced the frickin' card. They haven't sat down and just said, hey, this is the show. So you really don't even know what you're walking into at this point. There's little to no angles for the the, uh, Clash card either, but uh, I do look forward, like I said, next week, everyone, uh, me and Steve will be back. We're going to actually do the Clash of the Champions as a watch-along on the WWE Network, so we can't wait to have you back here then because uh, the show is, from my memory, not very good at all. The card is not very good at all, so I intend to have a whole lot of fun. Yeah, me too, man. I'm looking forward to it. Are they just using the name at this point to get it over? (laughs) I mean, are they just banking on it being a Clash so people are going to watch? 
I think at this point, George Scott's just looking at this as, I, I don't think he even understands what a clash is. So that, that's where we are with George Scott at this point. That or it's a throwaway just because it's five days before pay-per-view. That, those are the only two options, really. But Steve, I want to thank you for being here as we head off. Uh, wait for week three, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be back with Clash of the Champions Watch Along, St. Valentine's Massacre. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Thanks, Alfred. You can also follow me and Steve, as well as the Wrestling Memory Grenade on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. A final reminder that next week we'll feature a special watch-along edition as me and Steve queue up the WWE Network and hope you watch along with us as we view Clash of the Champions 5 St. Valentine's Massacre. I want to thank those who listened to our debut show last week for coming back for Episode 2. And new listeners, thanks for giving us a couple hours of your time. Thanks again to my co-host Steve Ekstat for being here. And for Steve, I'm your host Ray Russell saying from pillar to post and coast to coast, you pull the pin and we'll pick up the pieces right here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. See you next week. Don't miss it. Be there. Talk to your own hands, Shivani. Now, you're worse than David Crockett, you oh, know. That's terrible.